0: hello and welcome to a pop screen episode unlike any other we are counting down our favorite films of 2022. The list from ten to six will be uh, in this episode. The list from five to one will be put out as part of Directors Uncut tomorrow. If you're not already subscribed to the Directors Uncut feed, you can follow uh, our Twitter account, or it's tgs underscore the geek show, or you can follow Rob, the host of that podcast, at uh, Uncut Rob. And in fact, you'll be hearing from Rob right now. I have a huge cast
1: of co-hosts, so. Kat, Kat, hello
2: there. Hi, Happy New Year.
1: Um, making her first time appearance, uh, Naomi. Hi, thank you uh, so much
2: for being here.
1: No, thank you, thank you. Um, Jim's returning first time since Jackie
3: Chan, is that right? Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, thanks for having me on. Yes, and uh, last but not least, uh, after a, a busy
1: couple of weeks with Vincent, uh, he's back again. Indeed, hello. It's not
4: for Stanley. It's not for Ridley. It's for twenty twenty two. Hi, everyone.
1: Yes. Um. This is a big question to open it all one, but uh, twenty twenty two. How has it been for you all?
4: Overall, for me, it's been a really fantastic year. Um. I you know got the. I, I finally achieved my uh permanent my, my dream job, as it were. I'm. I, I'm buying a place and I have travelled a great deal. I am coming to you right now from uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and my fourth trip oh, wow. home abroad of 2022. So yeah, I'm, I've had a great
2: year.
1: Excellent. And everybody else? What's 2022 been for you? Um...
2: Busy. Very, very, very busy. Lots of writing, lots of film festivals, lots of films, and a toddler. So yeah, busy.
1: It's amazing to balance those things with a toddler because mm. they are all the energy in the universe. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and the army James twenty twenty
5: two. Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. Lots of uh, yeah, as Kat said, pretty busy. Uh, I mean, for me personally, lots of uh, non film related webinars, lots of conferences. So kind of my first time doing that. So it's been kind of an interesting journey there. Uh, Lots and lots of film festivals, which is great. Got to go back to New York for the first time since 2019. Have a lot of friends there. So it was very, very nice to go back there and travel again after not being able to do so for so long. And yeah, loads of festivals. It's been lots and lots of good films. That's what we're here to
3: talk about.
1: So yeah, very good year. Good year. So uh, James.
3: Yeah, I think it's been a good year. I mean, I've went to my first Fright Fest since before the pandemic, Um, got engaged, so that's something. Congratulations. congrats. And um, film-wise, it's been, I think it's been a darn good year. Um, Yep. Totally.
4: We're here to discuss our top films of the year, and believe me, whittling down everything I saw this year into just 10 was a real struggle.
1: Yes, yes, it has. So... Okay, so for me, jumping in at number 10, again, as Vincent um, pointed out, it's been a difficult one. So from a first pick of my number 10, I went with something that maybe might not appear on anybody else's. Um, it's an Icelandic film by uh, Hannah Bergholm called Hatching. I don't know if anybody else has seen this. I have yeah. seen it, yes. and um, The elevator pitch is essentially a teenage girl finds an egg in... Well, just find it, and Mother threatens to kill it, and she doesn't, so she rescues it and nurses it to life. And what it ends up being is this huge, monstrous creation. Um, with, for me, some of the best practical effects and monster design of the year. I mean, there's one festival movie I've never seen that might challenge it, but the monster in this is, is outstanding. Um, some people haven't liked it because it's one of these movies where it's the metaphor is the point. And I know there's a lot of criticism online of movies where, you know, I don't know there's a better way to word that, but it's subtext is a text. Yeah, yeah I and think that's people, a fair but, comment. And those people hate this, but for me, it's just uh, a very inventive and very, very dark, as Icelandic films tend to be.
4: Sorry, correction, Rob, it's it's Finnish.
1: Oh, is it really? Yeah. Okay, well, it's still, it's still uh, Scandinavia, I should say, and it's still very, very bleak. And yeah, I enjoyed hatching a great, great deal.
4: Yeah, as did I. hatching was um, one that uh, sort of—it certainly would get into my honourable mentions. Um, you know, sort of looking ahead to something I'll be mentioning. I feel hatching. I thought of as it's black swan meets turning red, and it's gripping, it's gruesome, and it's a tale of monstrosity, maternity, and maturation. And I totally get what you say, Rob. That it's um, relates to the subtext is the text, and yeah, I can also see how that might alienate people. But I'm glad that. You know, we both saw it. We both enjoyed it. Anyone else see that one?
2: I've seen Hatching. Uh, I saw it at, at Sundance and it is in sort of my top 10 horrors. It hasn't quite made this top 10, but I just love the fact that it's a, it's a horror story, but it's actually told with pastel colours. And it's like, I think I sort of coined it as a cotton candy, a cotton candy, uh, cotton candy nightmare. And that to me is... Uh, is what I really enjoyed about it. It's it's a horror film. It's got these really dark elements, but it looks so pretty.
5: And if people mm. haven't seen it, is it on any sort of streaming? Do we know? Has it got distribution in the UK? It's, that people-
2: it's got a Blu-ray
1: release in February coming out. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's one to put on your radar. Um, so cat number 10.
2: My number ten film is uh, the absolute mayhem that was *Ambulance*. You know, you've got uh, mm. Jake, Jake Gyllenhaal, <laughs> and um, was Yaya, Martin. Yaya and Martini Martin, the third or something. As adopted, as adopted brothers, who one's a, a marine, an ex-marine who's trying to do right by his family, and the other is. Uh, trying to be some sort of like a maniacal 80s uh, bank robber and uh, they two end up doing uh, the ultimate heist together and things go wrong a police officer gets shot they commandeer an ambulance and the rest of the film is one long car chase it is peak, it's peak Michael Bay, he hasn't made a film like this for years because he's been stuck down the Transformer <laughs> rabbit hole but He's back to form, and if you like drones, (laughs) boy, does he give a ton of of drone photography. It was a super, a super cheap film compared to some of his other films, and that's primarily because he used a drone to do absolutely like every shot possible. And yeah, I just I don't think there's been quite as many films that I've had so much fun watching in the cinema as I had with that. I mean, you've got you've got the Bayhem, and then you've got. Jake G just chewing up every single line and just having the most fun. And, you know, after his opening, you know, films like Donnie Darko and then Nightcrawler, it's nice to see him cut loose and and just be silly for once.
5: What I think I love about him is that He knows, always knows what film he's in. So it's like, okay, I'm going to make a Michael Bay film. He thinks he's he's seen nothing yet, my friend. So whether he's shrieking about sending out orders of flamingos or he's yelling about his cashmere jumper being ruined, you know, this is a man who knows precisely what kind of movie he's in and he calibrates the tone perfectly. The difficulty with it is he's so good that all of the rest of it becomes a bit dull in comparison Um, But I also especially loved that he had, as far as I can see, no plan whatsoever. I mean, what was his plan? He went in there with no mask on or anything else, with just his face showing to rob this bank as like, you know, a polite manager of some sort. He had zero plan, zero brains. He comes across as this genius, but actually it's the most idiotic plan ever. But yeah, it is. He is. I watched it on a plane having not seen it, which is, I think, possibly the perfect way to see this film. And it was amazing. I mean, he is absolutely incredible in it. I mean, he should be on every sort of best performance list of the year. He won't be, but he should be.
3: Yeah. I'm not so enamored with Michael Bay myself, but it was so fascinating how Hall's performance is the best embodiment of Michael Bay's filming style that I've seen in a while. Just how unhinged and off the wall it is. And I was really fascinated by how the story seemed to essentially come down to: we need to save this cop's life, no matter how many cops we have to kill to do it. Yeah, pretty
1: much. <laughs> um, okay, so the army number ten.
5: So I there was there was a lot of consideration that went into this, but at the end, I think my number ten is probably Elvis, uh, the three-hour Baz Luhrmann biopic of Elvis with Austin Butler, who is of course getting a huge amount of Oscar buzz for his role. I'm not entirely sure I know any more about Elvis than I ever did before in terms of uh, sort of the reality and factualness of of what it was like. And the first hour is like sort of having drunk five Mountain Dews in one, whilst incredibly suffering from a bout of insomnia and then and jet lag, and then going into sitting down in the cinema and watching this. I had no idea what was going on for the first 45 minutes. Lemon uses every single jump cut uh, imaginable, but I think over the course of it, he manages somehow to find the heart behind the man, even if it's not particularly accurate. And I think Austin Butler is superb. I mean, he does all the singing in the uh, in the initial scenes. That's just him. It's not, they blend his lyrics with Elvis's for the later ones, but he is 100% committed for the whole thing. Um, I mean, he's obviously campaigning very hard for an Oscar now, and there's no question that he'll be nominated, but I did think he did incredibly well. It's an absolute style-making turn. And it's sort of good to see Lerman back on form after quite a few years. You know, he was, I, I mean, I adore Moulin Rouge. I adored his early stuff. And then he kind of fell off a cliff a little bit. But this is definitely him back great on form. And it's its a beautiful movie. It's great. It has all the songs you could ever want. And it has it makes Elvis incredibly sexy. So what more could a girl want? <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, I not very. I wasn't really brought up with Elvis, so I knew next to nothing. But if there's one thing that is sort of my secret, my secret film genre. It's a musical biopic. I don't have to have heard a single song by the person, but I will go and watch that film, and I will love every second of it. And Elvis was was no exception. I thought, oh my god, this is three hours long. I'm gonna be so bored. But you're right. Austin Butler gives such such a, an amazing performance that you can't help but sort of get swept away into into the madness that that Lerman's sticking up on the screen. Definitely, mm-hmm.
4: madness is right. I th- I have no I had no particular strong feelings towards um, Elvis, but like you, Cat, um, I do tend to enjoy a musical biopic. Um, um, and I thought Elvis was dizzying. It was dazzling. It was a dervish of music and creativity and boundary crossing, hedonism. And exploitation, because yeah, on the one hand, it got us to really on board. I think with um, Elvis's um, career and his, um, you know, brought us into his performances, um, while also indicating, you know, there's something quite melancholy, something quite grim going on underneath it. Yeah, Elvis was great.
5: We also some great supporting roles like Dacre Montgomery, who obviously made it huge from Stranger Things. I thought he gave a very mature performance as one of uh, Elvis's producers and friends in his le- his le- sort of later times. I mean, the Tom Hanks performance, I think, <laughs> discussed at length, it's sort of macabre and grotesque, but somehow entirely in keeping with the actual film. Uh, he's noticeably, I think, not getting any Oscar buzz whatsoever, even though I think he was absolutely going for it. But it is, at the same time, kind of fun to see him enjoying playing somebody so incredibly venal. Um, so yeah, I thought he I thought he did very well.
3: Yeah, of all the films from this year, this is one of the most directed films mm-hmm. I've seen all year, and I just thought it was so exceptional and it held my attention all the way through. I had a blast with it, and Austin Butler. This is a star-making performance from him, and I can't wait to see what he does next. Absolutely, oh, June I think actually. So uh,
1: number ten james
3: yes my number 10 is Deadstream, and the story follows this disgraced internet personality who wants to win back his fans so he comes up with the idea of live streaming himself spending a night alone in a haunted house and while inside he this idiot uh, unleashes a vengeful spirit and it's his plans just all go to shit. And what this is, if Ghostwatch had a baby with Death of a Vlogger, and it was adopted by the Evil Dead 2, this would be the batshit concoction. It's terrifying, hilarious, it's grisly, and I always appreciate a film which gives legitimate reasons for why the lead does stupid stuff. I had a blast with it. It left me... On edge during sequences, and I just loved what Joseph and Vanessa Winter did with this premise.
5: it Deadstream is much higher on my list, and I just absolutely love it. I've rewatched it now about four times. I mean, I think firstly it's a hilarious performance from Joseph Winter all the way through when he's screaming and running. It, you just can't help but cackle. It's A very loving and very obvious tribute to the Evil Dead. He's been campaigning on Twitter to to get Bruce Campbell's attention. I think his son said that he would show it to him over the holidays, which was sweet. And he's been so active and enthusiastic with fans that have liked it. But I think my personal favorite bit in it is where they keep cutting to, because it's a live stream and you've got all the comments, they keep cutting to fans basically telling him he's completely screwed and about to die and then going but I just want to say Sean I'm a big fan I just wanted to get that out there so peace out and good luck with that Sean well they've just literally told him yeah Sean you you've you've destroyed the protective amulet you're going to die horribly but I just wanted to say I'm such a big fan and love the channel I think it's uh, it's yeah. hilarious I love it very very much.
1: Yeah, the funniest movie of the year. And I think it doesn't get enough credit for being really quite clever with the found footage premise. Yeah. Because the idea of the found footage premise always, always stumbles on is who's holding this camera and why are they holding this camera.
5: Yeah, But that ability
1: to sort of jump between camera feeds, it's very, very shrewd. And yeah. I don't think people, enough people are talking about it on that level, really.
5: And the lady who plays Mildred is a joy. She pops up again in VHS 99, 99 as uh, Mabel the Skull Crusher, and she is wonderful. I mean, I, I just team Mildred forever.
1: Hmm. Uh, Vincent, 10.
4: Well, I mentioned earlier that um, I thought hatching was like a cross between um, Black Swan and what is indeed my number 10 of this year, that is Pixar's Turning Red. Turning Red I describe as big, Meets the Incredible Hulk meets Metamorphosis. It's a an animated film that is super smart, super cute, super fluffy, and truly magical. It's an animated comedy adventure. It's about growing pains, it's about familial pressures, and it's the power of friendship, fandom, and song. Which, you know, thinking about it is quite a lot to squeeze into like an hour and forty minutes. Um, movie that went, you know, directly to um, Disney Plus and didn't get a theatrical release, which I think is a real shame. Um, it follows the life uh, of a teenage uh, girl of um, Chinese descent, but living in Toronto, who discovers that, um, as the women in her, that she has the inherit the inherited ability to transform into a giant red panda, and hilarity ensues and what i think is magnificent is that at no point is this film anything other than utterly accessible and utterly engaging and yet along the way there is so many interesting ideas so many fantastic themes and let's and let's not uh, deny a certain amount of um, ideas that caused some pearl clutching and people to say, oh, no, 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 this is totally inappropriate. You can't put discussion of menstruation into a children's film. And it's like, yes, yes, shut up, shut up. You go and sit down. Here's a ball. Go and play with it. You're the real children here. And, yeah, hey, any movie that pisses off conservative parts of society is doing something right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was able to present the idea of um, boy band fandom as something genuinely charming and not irritating so yeah uh, turning red is my number 10 i've watched it three times and i'm probably going to watch it a few more times absolutely love it it's too scary for
2: my three-year-old it's too oh, scary no. she, did, she, did they not like she, the panda no, she she didn't mind the panda, but she kept thinking it was a big monster. So no, maybe now like so. she's four. I'll try with it again. But no, she's uh, she's team bad guys when it comes to the animation. So, oh
3: dear.
5: yeah. I mean, it was nice to see an Asian family front and center. It was nice to see absolutely uh, a female directed film uh, be and uh, sort of put you know the growing pains of adolescence and what women actually go through front and center in a film in an easy accessible way that children could understand. I thought that was great. The boy band fandom part is hilarious. It's so clearly, I think they are all boys singers as well. I think that they're all singers from various different things or Broadway stars, so that was hilarious as well. But, yeah, I thought it was, it's a really, really charming film.
1: Okay, so on to number nine, and mine couldn't be a harder left turn. uh, It's Phil Tippett's Mad God. (laughs) which One choice. I don't think I ever want to watch it again but this literal descent into hell, I think deserves respect just because of the, how impressively animated it is and how everything of this, this nothing really happens plot wise. It's just, you observe some characters walking through this hellscape, but the, everything there is real and tactile and being made. And it's a, like an object of love and affection that this guy spent 20 years making. I think it's just so worthy of respect and it has uh, at least seven of the most disgusting moments of the year at least i don't think the bits with live action actors i think it's alex cox in fact works quite as well but all of the the animated stuff it's just beautifully gross
2: yeah i started watching it at i started watching it 1am um in bed Ooh. and oh. got to a point of like am i asleep and dreaming like am i having a really bizarre nightmare or is this really happening uh, so yeah that was a that was a fun viewing experience
5: I sort of re- I respect how long it took. I respect the ambition. I respect the filmmaking. I didn't like it at all. I thought it was utterly miserable because it's just oh, yes. bleak and nihilistic. And yes, I mean, I I think I turned it off about an hour in because I just couldn't cope with it anymore. But I've seen it crop up on an awful lot of people's top ten lists, and so I can understand what people are seeing in it and why they were respect the ambition and the sort of the fortitude to get it made. I mean, he had, didn't he have a breakdown during getting this made? I mean, extraordinary. He's kind of gone above and beyond. So you have to respect the man's vision, but not one for me.
1: Yeah, I, I, I basically agree. It's an achi- I respect it, Mark, for its achievement, because mm-hmm. I'd never watch it again. I don't think I could.
3: I'm the same. I respect it. I respect how long it took Phil Tippett to get this made, but I don't think there was enough for me to stop my attention from waning, and it it just wasn't one for me. However, mightily crafted it was.
2: So, seeing as though we are talking about UK releases, and I can't have Pearl because we've got to wait until March next year, I'm going to go with Ty West's other other film, X. It's a, a film about in the seventies, a group of filmmakers go to a farm to make a porno. Much to the upset of the owners of the farm, and over one night, uh, there is kills and crocodiles aplenty. And it's for me, it's just a really sort of fun reworking of like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and it's the slasher film. I think slasher films have had a bit too much fun in recent years. You know, you've got films like Scream, which was also out this year, that are poking fun at the the slasher conventions. And this sort of dows it back and and goes back to doing a, a more traditional slasher, but in a way that still is quite fun. And for me, whenever you put Britney Snow in something, I'm going to watch it. And she just, I know everyone talks about General Ortega and Mia Goth, but Britney Snow is, is giving it some in X. So that, that has to be uh, on there purely, purely for, for that fandom.
5: It's beautiful cinematography as well. I mean, it's very, because this whole thing is about making a porno but being beautiful, and it is a beautifully, beautifully shot film. I have to admit, I did not know that Mia Goth was playing both roles until after I saw it. Uh, I thought she did phenomenally well, and, yes, Jenny Ortega is having herself one hell of a year. But it's great because the kills are inventive I mean, I guess there was it got a little bit of criticism for being an example of exploitation in terms of having the older lady be the killer but I thought it was brilliant inventive kills very brutal uh poor Jenny Ortega's death is gotta be one of the best jump scares of the year I thought it was brilliant
2: yeah I mean I also really like what it is saying about the older woman and her libido and you know it's not like it's like men are seen, you know they're always seen as you know being these sexual beings you know you've got Rod Stewart and like des O'Connor who are still fathering children like well into their 60s and 70s but for women we apparently just give up on sex when we hit like 30 or something so to to see through pearl this older woman who does still have these desires and urges I think it's really a really interesting character to explore
3: Yep, yeah, definitely. And what definitely. I thought really worked well with it, alongside the grisly scenes and the fantastic practical effects, is this heartfelt look at aging, which I think is really well exemplified with this cover of Fleetwood Max Landslide, which just really left me <laughs> a bit sideswiped at the time. But uh, yeah, I quite liked what Ty West did with this, and good God, why do we have to wait so long for Pearl?
4: I enjoyed it a lot, perhaps not as much as some of um, of you, but uh, it was yeah, I did like its exploration of age and loss and the fears of these, and it was um, yeah, uh, did a nice job of bodies being exposed and opened, and did it all with a very sweaty and grisly knowing look without being too knowing, uh, which was
1: most pleasing. And that's a lower tone, but it's nice that slash has out how to be sleazy again. They've all been sort of. Um... Glossy. Elevated? Yeah, glossy and all about trauma with Jamie Lee Curtis. Just the amount of time she said the same two words in every single interview she did for Halloween. And it's nice that, you know.
5: Well, she had a talking point. And goodbye. God, she hit them every time.
6: <laughs> <laughs> yes.
5: So at number nine, it's the last great movie star that we have. So it's Top Gun Maverick, which I saw in... I saw the BFI I- IMAX twice and as far as I was concerned I was flying the planes it was amazing. I think the great thing about Top Gun Maverick is if you t- you sit down and you analyze it and you look at it from a critical time the writing is not that great. It's all very obvious. The bad guys are sort of Russian but sort of not because we don't want to come out and say that they're Russian in case that sort of harms the commercial prospects overseas. It's all very by the numbers but no matter what you think of Tom Cruise or his background or anything else, the man is sheer movie star. He is 100% charisma and he owns that. And it's also, I think, a really interesting look, kind of following the, the theme of X, of aging, in that you know, he can't be the top gunner anymore. He can't be the one that's going to s- save the day. He has to be able to rely and trust on these younger kids coming in and paving the way for him. And also to, to show his relationship uh, with, God, I've forgotten her name now, uh, the lead who is, I think, you know, is an older woman and have it actually be a Jennifer Connolly, have it actually be age appropriate for once. Because in the Mission Impossible films, they pair him with Rebecca Ferguson, who doesn't look it, but she is considerably younger than him by a good few decades. Whereas at least Jennifer Connelly is age appropriate, and it is sad that it is quite rare to see a perfect and very romantic relationship between sort of two people who are in their fifties. I think he's in his sixties, but it I, it was extraordinary, and the action is incredible. The man will not be content until he has died on screen. <laughs> <during his time. laughs> he wants it's clearly his sole wish, as you've seen. We've seen the Mission Impossible behind-the-scenes thing that went, uh, went around. I mean, he, for heaven's mm-hmm. sake, he wished everybody get Happy Christmas while throwing himself off a plane. But I think what's <laughs> on that is incredible. The Lady Gaga song doesn't quite stack up compared to some of the stuff in the original. I'm not a fan of Miles Teller, but actually I think his kind of douchey swagger works perfectly with the character. And, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's fantastic, pure, you know, Movie telling as storytelling, and I think it's one of the few movies of the year that you could recommend to to anybody, and they would go and have a fantastic time. Seen it's had the most extraordinary legs at the box office. I mean, people have it's been released time and time again and packed out how movie houses because you know it's the one thing that I think anyone of all any ages can see.
2: So yeah, definitely Top Gun Maverick. Hmm. Yeah, it's on. it's, It's on my list slightly, slightly higher up. You know, it's. It's a sequel that improves on the original. I know a lot of people that hated Top Gun and then went to see Top Gun Maverick and were like, Oh my God, this is, this is absolutely amazing. But there's enough touchstones there for those who did watch the original. You've got this beautiful scene with, um, Maverick and Iceman where they managed to work in Val Kilmer's real life health issues into yeah. the story in a way that, that really, that really worked and sort of enriched it. You've got Miles Teller who, I, I mean, If I was Miles Teller's dad, I would be asking my my partner, where she was about <laughs> where she was in relation to Anthony Edwards about yeah. nine months before uh, their son was born, because there's moments in that film where they are twins. Yeah. But I think for me, it's Glenn Powell that steals the film. As this this whole thing yeah, in
5: fantastic,
2: yeah, there's this whole thing to do with Top Gun about how it's this homoerotic story between like Maverick and Iceman, they're falling, you know. They're, they're you know, they're secretly in love, and in Hangman, you have the love child of maverick and iceman he's got that same bullish nature as as maverick and that sort of same cold demeanor of, of iceman so in my head he's like the the kid that they adopted and and raised uh, to be the the next top gun
5: and i was really pleased that he got because he he broke out in scream queens in which he is yes. fantastic And then didn't really go anywhere with that. It it sort of broke out. And then, of course, it got cancelled. But he didn't really leap very far. But now Top Gun Maverick seems to have done it for him. I I suspect we're going to see him everywhere from now on. And, yeah, he is brilliant in it. I'm going to say,
4: um, Naomi, I would need to agree and disagree with you because um, I thought um, Top Gun: Everick was brilliant. I thought it was joyous. It was exhilarating. It was witty and it had aspects of regret and camaraderie, um, redemptive nostalgia and some incredible aerial thrills. However, I think it's actually a textbook case of excellent screenwriting. Um, um, If I was teaching a course on um, film narrative that, you know, one day I probably will, I would use Top Gun Maverick as a perfect example. And I'm one of these people who does not like the original Top Gun. I think it's horrible. Um, But I thought that Maverick was brilliant because um, the script is... So neatly structured, looking at what Aaron Kruger, Eric Warren Singer, and Christopher McQuarrie, the screenwriters, do. What you have in Top Gun Maverick is an absolutely perfect three act structure. And it's notable that various other blockbusters of this year fell into the trap of being overwritten, you know, from um, Jurassic World Dominion to Black Adam to Avatar The Way of Water. There's just too much stuff going on here and not enough focus. Whereas Top Gun Maverick, clear okay so we've got this and then we have got this and then we got this oh nice all fits together very nicely so while it's not necessarily a complex story i would say it's a beautifully structured one um but yeah great movie no
3: question i must admit i am also one who did not care for the original top gun so going into the sequel i was like really but then i was just absolutely teary-eyed and stunned coming out the other end of this film and I hope it comes back to cinemas again, because I want to take my brother to see it, but I just adored this. James, number nine. My number nine is a film which finally got a UK release this year. It's Paul Verhoeven's latest film, Benedetta. and It's set in late 17th century, where there's a plague ravaging the land. The story focuses on the titular Benedetta, who joins a convent in Tuscany to become a nun. And while she's there, she falls for another nun. While this is going on, she seems capable of performing miracles, and she gets visions of a hunky Jesus throughout. And I think this is absolutely exemplary. I thought it's a really engrossing tale about this intoxicating power struggle. And at the centre of it are these exceptional characters, brought alive by phenomenal performances. And you know what? That's not bad for a film which essentially makes a dildo out of a statue of the Virgin Mary.
4: (laughs) It wasn't until I saw Benedetta that I realised I needed the, you know, uh, the image of two nuns pleasuring each other with a dildo carved from the Virgin Mary in my life. But you know, I'll say now, I think it's lustrous. I think it's Gorgeous, it's electrifying, it combines belief with, and fanaticism, politics, passion, and love, and the tension between faith and duplicity.
1: Number nine, Vincent.
4: My number nine is one that um, is probably going to come up in a few people's lists. Um, it is The Banshees of Inisherin. The Banshees of Inisherin is a beautiful and touching, melanchol- melancholic yet humorous, whimsical and yet quietly profound dark tragicomedy of wisdom and dullness, niceness and resentment, mental health struggles and the tensions of small communities. And what's incredible is that it manages to be all of that when, in the story of two lifelong friends who find themselves at an impasse because one of them abruptly ends their relationship. Um, you have um, Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleason in possibly career best performances as uh, Patrick and Colum and. Colm says, "No, I don't want. I'm not going to do Irish accents because I'll insult the entire nation of Ireland if I do that." Um, the uh, Colm says, "No, I don't want to be friends with you anymore. I just don't like you." And the rest of the film, which is um, written and directed by Martin McDonough, concerns how these two men deal with the fact that their relationship has been completely central to their lives, and now it isn't. And what are they going to? do about that, and what is the community around them going to do? Um, You've got a great supporting cast, um, including um, Kerry Condon and Pat Short, um, and in particular, standout role, um, Barry Kagan. Um, So many of the performers, and indeed the film as a whole, are being tipped for award nominations. Um, And the weird thing is, it manages to combine so many things. The first act of the film is pretty much laugh-out-loud funny, then at points it gets very dark and grim, Um, the cinematography is gorgeous i mean i want to book my next trip to the island where it was filmed and it is yeah um so many uh, different ideas and it manages to have these sort of little moments of like oh and there also happens to be some familial abuse that that's that's interesting um while also you know how do people have relationship and brings in the um you know the redemptive and charming um, power of animals as well um and what does it mean to get out of a particular set of a particular society where you've been stuck your entire life there's an awful lot in this film and yet it never feels um less than um as i guess i said, similar although it's a very different film from turning red it is also a film that never feels less than totally accessible and engaging so yes that is my number nine the banshees of inisherin
5: That's uh, much, much higher on my list. I mean, what I love about Martin McDonald's films is that pretty much every line is quotable. I mean, I love Barry Keegan's response to uh, Carl suddenly deciding that Patrick's not not his friend anymore. He just goes, what is he, 12? And then it sort of goes (laughs) from there. I mean, it's the most ridiculous thing. This is a tale of two men that would literally, you know, one of them would rather cut his fingers off than go to therapy, but it's all the lines of it's about depression, it's about despair the fact that the priest just goes to him how's the despair as if (laughs) that's an acceptable thing to say but I think in particular it's Patrick's speech in the pub where he just says what's wrong with being nice because what is wrong with being nice that's sort of that is how he has lived his life in a very simple content happy way he knows he's nice he knows the people around him are nice and so for calm to come along and just put a bombshell up into all of that and just upends his entire life. And I think Kerry Condon's role in particular, Siobhan, is wonderful because she loves her brother and she loves the people, but she cannot live in that suffocating small life anymore where she knows there is no life for her. She, she's just surrounded by this, you know, suffocating weight of their shared history and the fact that she knows she's going nowhere. And it all links slightly with the civil war, but not really. And it's just the same as most Martin McDonald's in that, you know, there will be these incredibly shocking acts of violence halfway through, out of nothing, and such a bleak but hilarious undertone. I think three billboards was a bit of a departure for him because it was US based. He is definitely better off focusing um on, on Ireland and on his sort of his home turf. And I just think it's, it's a wonderful film. It's Colin Farrell's best performance. There's something about it that is so transformative that it sort of, he doesn't look, because Colin Farrell is a pure movie star. He's very charismatic. He's incredibly handsome. And yet in this, he just, in his comfortable tweeds and woolens, he looks very, very different. Bre- Brendan Gleason is always incredible. And it's great to see them paired again after In Bruges. And I think Barry Cogan in particular is an extraordinary in this his line reading of well that's another dream crushed is beyond heartbreaking i know that everyone pretty much wants him in everything right now he was sadly very much wasted in eternals which i found fairly awful so but it is it's a it's an incredible film but there's just so much you could quote from it that it has the, one of the most quotable scripts of the year, and it is beautifully shot but it is about It's about friendship and loneliness and bleakness and shared history. And you can't really beat a script that has a line of dialogue which says, I'm not putting the donkey outside when I'm sad, Siobhan.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I gotta agree. This is, for my money, Martin Madonna's best film since In Bruges, I thought. The way it looks at the pointlessness of feuding, and examines aching sadness which stems from loneliness, and cries for help going heartbreakingly unanswered, it just really broke my heart. But it was also pretty darn funny. I mean, funny. you find a better mention of a bread van in a film, and <laughs>
5: <laughs> it's when it was when Barry Lygun says, "I think that might be the meanest thing I've ever heard," and he says it was such and such heartbreak because at that point he realizes that the one person he thought was good and genuine and nice and always, always would be has the same capacity for violence and evilness within him that he fears in his father and everybody else. It just destroyed me. But that whole thing about the bread fan, when he said, but that's what happened to my father, I mm-hmm. love
1: it. My number eight is uh, an Iranian movie by Panah Panahi, I hope I pronounced that right, called uh, Hit the Road. Um, one of the stories of the year, really, um, has been, well, Iran, really, in its treatment of women, especially. Um, this isn't specifically about that. It's about a family who um, are on a road trip to the northern part of Iran to help their son escape for a wedding. Uh, well, he's married, I should say, escape to find his bride. And uh, it's... It's what I like about road movies, really. Uh, they can encapsulate so many things, but particularly in this case, it's about the reality of what it's like and what you have to uh, sacrifice, really, to be able to live a life of anything in Iran or outside of Iran. And uh, it's it's really beautiful. And the character dynamics and the character moments, it too can be funny. Um, in the treatment of a dog that they've got called Jesse, which is, it's dying and... The dad just does not know how to get rid of it. And so it's got an awkward black sense of humour to it. Um, but yeah, it's just very touching. It's got a little lad in there who's... He's basically... I see he's about eight or nine, but he's like a toddler. And he's all of the energy. And he's uh, quite intense. Very, very funny. There's a great bit about... Uh, Batman, the car he'd get if he was Batman, it'd cost 60, 600 million US dollars and he's just laying on his his dad's stomach because his dad's broken his leg and just talking about all the things that he'd have in his, his Batmobile. It's really, really touching, but gets the, the political point as well, which is, is nice. And I think um as far as Iranians, I think they're kind of the best at doing that sort of thing, really, telling these humanist stories very, very well. But yeah, that's uh, Hit the Road, man number eight.
2: So my number eight is I've the only, only seen film seen that
1: one, sorry. <laughs>
2: <Okay>. no, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, I don't but, think any of it no. i go
1: on yeah. then cash.
2: <laughs> my number eight film is the uh the only film this year that I had to take a little break from and that is uh Escole Voigt's The Innocence. I've spoken about it before on on this podcast and it's set it's set over one one summer, and it's these kids that live in this tower block, and they suddenly start to develop as sort of like telekinetic powers. And uh, rather than using the powers for good, they use them very very bad. Mm. And what I particularly enjoy, especially as a parent, is how it portrays the the brutality of children because they are learning right and wrong up in a way sort of always learning right and wrong to a degree but especially during those formative years it takes a long time before you understand that you know you you shouldn't hit somebody you know you shouldn't do that you shouldn't do this and this is a film that explores that and it demonstrates that kids are vicious you know i've got she's just turned four but you know the the things that I have sort of seen her do and I've been like, what are you doing? And it's because she doesn't have that concept yet. She's not got that mental maturity to realize that what she's doing has consequences. And that's exactly what this film explores, but it does go to some very bleak Mm. places and sort of, warning for anybody that hasn't watched it yet that is venturing into it there is an atrocious piece of animal cruelty involving a cat so maybe when you see the cat you might want to go and make yourself a drink and then come back a couple of minutes later and uh, continue on this journey it's it's tapping into films like chronicle but dialing the cast back to pre-teens and just going to much much darker places so it's i wouldn't say i enjoyed watching it but i got a lot from watching it and it is a film that i think people should seek out if they think that they've got the mental capacity for it because it's just it's a stunning a stunning story coupled also with some really beautiful cinematography it's It's sort of like
3: a
5: really gnarly X Men but for pre-teens Yeah. I have a slight pause about it in that the uh the girl who's playing the autistic character is not autistic. She is able bodied ah. in real life, which is always the way. And I appreciate that people have different sensibilities and in different cultures and um, filmmaking arenas than we do. So that's fine. So I think that's my only slight quibble with it. But it is I mean, I'm not one that's particularly phased by animal scenes in films, but that cat death is brutal. And, yeah, it is sort of, it is a really fascinating look at how vicious kids can be. I think it's great. and It's sort of, on the one hand, it's quite straightforward, but also the degree of brutality, it goes to places you would not expect it to go.
1: There's a scene especially with uh, the boy who lives with his mum and what happens with his mum. Yeah. which I think will stay with me for a few years, I'll be honest.
2: Stay with me for a few years as mine grows up. Like, yeah. it'd be extra nice to her. Uh... You've got to watch them, Pat. You've got to watch him. I know. is why I'm only on. having one. That's why I'm one and done, you know. <laughs> Stop not security insecurity cameras up.
3: <laughs> the um, film's a good ad for con- contraception, though. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
4: oh, yeah. Um, yeah, The Innocence is in. Um, is higher up on my own list. Um, yeah, I agree. It, it, it looks gorgeous. Um, while also being it, – it has, in terms of the – I think the cinematography does a lovely job of placing us at very close quarters to these um, decidedly um, non-innocent innocents. Um, you know. um, it's unsettlingly intimate – and by ter- turns, it's chilling, it's charming, and it's horrifying. I'm particularly um, interested in the sort of crossover that I keep seeing between um, horror and um, superhero. And I think The Innocence is a nice um, example of these sort of genres coming together, leaning very much into the horror side of things with the aspect of the superpower discovery um, and absolutely the childish cruelty is there it kind of reminds me a lot of i think let the right one in in terms of we're looking here at children we're looking at extraordinary events some of which are horrifying and the setting as well but whereas um, let the right one in is always um, in dark darkness and snow this one makes the um you know the it t- the constant bright sunshine into something that should be, that is beautiful and should be revealing. But what it's revealing is very, very horrible. Yeah. Strong, mm. strong choice there.
1: Um, number eight, Naomi.
5: Sure. So my number eight is the Batman. So I'm a huge Batman fan. I always have been uh, since I was a kid. And I loved the Tim Burton films. I love the Christopher Nolan films. The Ben Affleck films we will not discuss.
2: <laughs> and so it was really
5: nice to see Matt Reeves come back with his take on the Long Halloween. It sort of positions it's not an origin story, thank God. And it positions Batman back to more like the comic book should be, in terms of sort of aping up his element as the great detective. I mean, he's not really if you actually watch it, he's not actually very bright. It takes him quite a while. It takes him with a lot of help from from the cops and everybody else to actually grasp what's going on. But he is very, very good indeed. I love the portrayal of the Riddler. It's a very different portrayal of the Riddler than you normally see. It's sort of much more sort of the Riddler by way of Zodiac, but it is, I think, it's an angry film. And I think that kind of came out in a lot of the films this year, that there is this, I mean, Batman has always had the undertone of obviously Goth- Gotham City is a cesspool. You've got to rise up against the people in power, but this is... Particularly, I think this year the sort of the tales of government corruption, etc., I think hit a little harder. You've got the likes of Peter Sarsgaard coming in for a tiny cameo as the DA, only to be immediately blown up. You've got John Tuturo, who is incredibly creepy as Carmen Falcone. Zoe Kravitz is charming and sexy and great as Selena Kyle, because I am very particular about my catwomen. Um, very hard to beat Michelle Pfeiffer, but I thought that she came in with a really interesting approach to the character. And the relationship between her and Batman was was realistic without being, it wasn't too romantic. It, was, it just sort of fit very well and didn't feel shoehorned in. Robert Pattinson is a great actor and did about as well as anybody can do when they've got, you know, black eyeshadow all under their eyes and wandering around looking. He's very much as the emo Batman. He looks quite sad in a lot of rain quite a lot of the time. But it's Colin Farrell as the Penguin. I've watched it about four times, and my mind cannot comprehend that he is the Penguin. There is one scene where you can clearly see it's his eyes. But otherwise, vocally, movement, everything, the prosthetics are astonishing. But more than that, I mean, most films, I mean, Jared Leto in all that prosthetics in House of Gucci is still just Jared Leto. Whereas Colin Farrell in this is, you cannot tell that it is him at all. It is extraordinary. And I know that he's, they're making a spin off series for HBO HBO Max with him in it. But I think it's great. I mean, it's overlong, which I think is fortunately a feature of a lot of films on this list. Nothing needs to be longer than two hours, people. Two hours 20 is (laughs) unnecessary. We all have things to be doing with our days. But it's great. It's bleak. It's, you know, noir-drenched. It's a proper detective story. It has a very interesting look at the Waynes and sort of topples the idea of Thomas Wayne as the, the great saviour of Gotham. Yeah, I thought it was great. Um I know that DC isn't currently going through a huge overhaul, but I'm <laughs> hoping they're just going to leave this alone because I want to see Barry Cohen as, as the Joker. Mm. Yeah. Mm.
3: Yeah, I saw this film at a midnight screening and I must admit, I did not feel the runtime until I was waiting through the credits for it to show me a website at the end.
5: Well, that was that was, that was that was your false choice there, my friend. We'll never wait to the end credit if you're going to a midnight screening. You just look that up on the internet afterwards.
3: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I should have realised that, but... I really liked it. I liked how vampiric Pattinson's Batman seemed. as, And I liked how, essentially, his journey was from being the boogeyman that makes criminals afraid to the shining beacon of hope within the corrupt city. And I loved how it used Nirvana's something-in-a-way to symbolize that on either end of the story. I just... I am a big Batman fan, and I really liked what they did with this film.
5: And it's also interesting because its he recognises that violence begets violence, that mm. him being out there as Mr. Vengeance hasn't actually made anything better. Because as always, Bruce, you could just use your billions to improve things, <laughs> improve the infrastructure, schooling, <laughs> education. Come on, Bruce. Stop playing with your little toys. And it's also really great to see Andy Circus always mm. uh, as Alfred. I know that he's kind of Matt Reeves' talisman because he was uh, in all the Planet of the Apes films with him. But yeah, he was, he was brilliant as always.
4: Yep. I'll echo everything that um, you said. Bat- the Batman is in my top 10 as well, a bit higher up. Um, and everyone's been mentioned, with one exception. I will just fly the flag for um, Jeffrey Wright as yeah. James Gordon, who I think does a fantastic job as well. But I found the Batman intense. It was grim, brooding, brutal, intimate, deliberate. And it did another, did another nice job of um, blending the street-level vigilante with the detective Um, it was very atmospheric it had plotting that was intricate without being overdone and i think it did a nice and as you say the idea of violence begetting violence it was an interesting exploration of the politics of vengeance yeah but my
3: Hmm. god was there a lot of rain (coughs) well
5: they filmed mostly in glasgow so there you go
3: yeah (laughs) my number eight has already been mentioned the banshees of anything to add on that I think I've said, or I mentioned the bread van, I'm good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Hello, Colin Farrell's had a very good year, hasn't he?
3: Yeah,
5: it's been oh, a yeah. real banner year for him because I, I, I haven't seen After Yang, but I understand that, that he's superb in that as well. He's really good in After Yang, really good in it.
4: My number eight is Speak No Evil. <laughs> Speak No Evil was a film I had heard great things about from others and so I was very anxious to see it. And when I got a um, Shudder trial, that was the first thing I looked up. And Speak No Evil is one of those things where you hear the hype and you think, is it really going to measure up to the hype? And my goodness, did it ever. Because Speak No Evil is deeply uncomfortable, ferociously tense, and thoroughly terrifying. Um, It concerns a um, Danish family who, while on holiday in Italy, meet a Dutch family who invite them to come and stay with them Um, in the Netherlands. They do, and fairly quickly regret that decision. Um, It's a a movie that can make you – if you ever go on holiday and make a point of not speaking to other people – Um, then you can watch this movie and feel quite smug, I think. (laughs) Um, As what we see here is in this psychological horror, there is manipulation, there are escalating aggressions and social appropriation. And there were three key moments in this film. I think it's maybe quite uncomfortable for um, parents. um, And I'm not a parent. And I still found it very, very discomforting for a couple of moments where um, children come under severe threat. And I was like, oh, no, oh, God, no. And then later on, it was, ah, oh, don't do that. Oh, oh, they did. And then the finale, I was like, oh, oh, just, oh, please, let it end, let it end. Um, and despite that, um, it also does it does a nice job, I think of um, interrogating ideas of social niceties. It does um, an effective job of um, presenting home life that is you know maybe a bit different from your, from your own and think, okay, well, how much of what I'm feeling here is just me in something unfamiliar? And how much of it could actually be, you know, unsafe? Um, yeah, the performances of the four adults and two children are, um always absorbing. Um the locations are particularly well set. Most of it takes place in the home of the Dutch couple, and it's a space that manages to be both homely and threatening. And which would might be a, a nice way of summing up the film. In some ways it feels quite some parts of it work as something inviting and other parts of it do not. Um and, and I feel although it gets into some extreme territory, it never goes too far into, oh well, that's just silly. It felt, um, for me at all times, plausible um, in a way that I think a lot of the most malevolent type of horror does. So, yeah, that's my number eight, Speak No Evil.
5: What I love yeah, about I, it, I, Danish, sort of, literally see this as quite funny, that it's meant to be a dark satire. comes up with, a, I think the first title sequence is something like Never Trust People, including the Including the Dutch. It's just the most – sorry, I cut, I cut you off there, but it's the sorry. most extraordinary, the fact that they sort of see this as like a dark satire.
2: Well, they're not wrong. Yeah. So I caught it at Sundance, so I saw it before any of the hype. Mm-hmm. I caught a press screening for it, and I thought it, it was fine. But as, as an introvert, I would never find myself in that position. So I just spent the whole film being like, well, this is what you get for making friends with people on holiday, you silly people. But also they are terrible parents. I'm sorry, you don't go and stay with somebody and be like, oh, yeah, we're going to go out. What about my kid? Oh, it's going to stay with this random man that's just turned up. No, your kid can stay with a random man. My kids come in, come into the meal. And, you know, every parent knows. And this film was probably going to open the eyes of of some new people. Favourite toys, you always need a spare because they're gonna lose it, they're gonna break an arm. it's you know favorite toys you always have have a spare. And again, that would have saved them uh, a lot of, a lot of trouble. So it's a, it's a great film to watch and you sort of put yourself in the how far along would it be before, mm-hmm. I was in trouble. And for me personally, I'm, I'm never saying hello to them. So I am good.
5: <laughs> I, think I've, no, I think I've ever screamed at the screen quite as much as I did in that film um, because there is an escalating series of teeny tiny microaggressions from continually refusing to respect the fact that she's a vegetarian. Yes. The increased uh, lackness of boundaries around the child. But it's the fact, I mean, I kind of put on Twitter, at what point would you have left? And I think pretty much everyone agreed that they would never have gone on holiday with total <laughs> strangers yes. or to their house. I mean, even if you were going to go on holiday with total strangers, you would go to a hotel. Yes. You would not go to their house in another country. But yeah, I screamed so much. And when he turned that car around to get that toy, I, I was done with these people. <laughs> 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 Kind
4: of reminds me of um, uh, Sergeant Howie in The Wicker Man. It's like,
3: get out of there, you fucking idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Really, it's just a good advertisement for being a bit of an arsehole a bit more. Just fuck the social niceties. Yeah,
5: I think it's about, and I mean, that's what it's all about. And that's what they were all aiming for. But it kind of just takes it to such an extreme. But yes, I was... It was the bit where, where they walk straight out the door with the, the guy that's been there for 10 seconds and leave the kid that I was like, What are you doing? Extraordinary. Yep,
4: fair, fair. Yeah. Alternative Absolutely. title for Speak No Evil,
1: That Darn Bunny. I would have went with Piece of Shit movie, but, you know, I'm um, <laughs> of the opposite opinion. I genuinely. yeah, you sir. Genuinely despise this. I understand everything okay. it did. Why it's did just, you despise I it? Hate it.
6: Why did you
5: despise it?
1: One of my least favourite of you the year. You just find
5: it a bit Ooh. contrived in terms of how it attempts to get the shocks.
1: Well, yes, it's not as shocking as it was claimed to be. Its messaging is naive, honestly, a little bit. And the amount of times where the people behaved in a way which was completely contrary to any human I ever met in my entire life. Yeah, that's true. It's that's fair. fair play. It c- kind of pulls the rug out from underneath it. Yeah. Anyhow, my number seven will be quick because it's been mentioned twice already, but uh the ballad of Insherin. Um yeah. Oh. It's it's great.
4: Oh, the Banshees um, of Inisharin.
1: Yeah, sorry. I'm mixing titles up there. And the Banshees of Inisharin. And the only thing is it's got some um, alumni from Father Ted in there, so I think that's just sort of like a little <laughs> nice little thing for me there. And uh, I think it's the owner of the bar was also in Father Ted.
5: The two, bar, the two bar men uh, deserve kind of best reaction shots throughout. They are effectively a great chorus throughout
2: the entire film, which is their entire purpose, but they are brilliant.
1: Totally. Yes. Um, Cat number seven.
2: Uh, my number seven is, is also one that we've discussed, and that is uh, Top Gun Maverick. Uh, I guess the only thing that I will add is that it has you – right from those opening bars of Highway to the Danger Zone. It's that epic you know, setup of, of the flighting of, you know, Maverick getting ready. And, you know, instantly from they bought this song back, this is going to be a good time. And it is a it's a great time. Hmm.
1: And you want number seven?
5: So my number seven, I suspect, might be higher on other people's lists. And that is Nope. I think it's just the most, because I think it's, It's On the one hand, it's a very simple sci-fi, and it is literally cowboys versus aliens. So you have Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer literally just fighting off an alien invasion. I have never trusted clouds, so wasn't really surprised to me to discover (laughs) that one of these clouds is an alien. But then it goes into this really fascinating look at fame and exploitation and human nature's desire to exploit everything that we see and everything that we touch, and about ownership, because it's all very well to get that picture, but it's about who owns that picture, who owns the story, who owns the history behind it. And Daniel Kaluuya is great. It's possibly, he's quite taciturn, but his performance, you know, he just wants to be able to live his life contentedly without aliens or his sister or anybody else bothering him. He's just very happy. He gets possibly the best hero shot I have seen of the year at the end when he's He's on his horse in the uh, Having Saved the Day. Yi Palmer is an absolute live wire in this. She is luminous. She's great. Has some of the best cinematography and some of the best lighting. Probably seen on Twitter because it went viral about the massive lighting setups they had at night to make it look as good as it did. But it is Stephen Yoon's storyline that has just haunted me. The whole thing about Gordy and the exploitation of animals and how they put this chimpanzee out there for our enjoyment and uh, entertainment, and then killed it when things weren't bad. And Stephen Hughes's performance is this, you know, deeply traumatized man who is also profiting off his own trauma, which I thought was extraordinary. The way that he tells that story was such nonchalance. And he's got this entire room of collectibles that represent the worst thing that ever happened to him. And he's reinvented himself as this sort of ultra white, ultra vintage, you know, half of this sort of Howdy Doody type cowboys and runs this theme park. It's extraordinary. I would have watched an entire film focused on him alone. I think it's the most understated and most unsung performance of the year. I think he's absolutely incredible in it. The sequence where he introduces his old co-star and we see what what remains of her face is horrendous. And the monster itself, it's beautiful, very scary. Jean Jacket is some of the most beautiful cinematography. And Jordan Peele, It's always great. And I think there's a tendency to read too much into his films, not everything. It has an underlying metaphor. This is, in many ways, just a great sci-fi horror. But I think it is. It's the most beautiful film of the year, certainly, in terms of how it looks. And it's just, you know, it's a great popcorn sci-fi horror. But yeah,
2: Stephen Yoon's performance, I think, in it is extraordinary. I mean that's I've never trusted chimps are a phobia of mine. I don't trust no. them and this film has done nothing nothing yeah, to help, help with help those that. fears. Yeah. <laughs> but also I just want to I just want to give a shout out to to Michael Wincott. You know, that guy was killing yes. it in the 90s in The Crow and like Along Came a Spider and Alien Resurrection and then he's kind of disappeared for a while. It's nice to sort of see him back or I guess I should more accurately say to hear him back because the that man's voice is just
5: I assume Amazing. they didn't put him in a sequence with Keith David because you literally would <laughs> not <never laughs> been able to cope with the sheer power of their vocalisations on screen. But, yeah, the most incredible voice.
4: Nope, certainly gets into my honourable mentions. I thought it was a wonderful amalgam of referentiality and innovation. Um, And I do think it was doing it. um, It was great sci-fi Western horror, though I also think it was doing a nice bit of meta cinemat as well and able to do some remarkable things with the terror of both open spaces and enclosed spaces. And hey, what's more meta cinematic than it's literally about the power of the gaze in many ways? Yeah. Certainly, although it's not in my top ten, so I have many good things to say about Nope.
3: Mm. It's in my honourable mentions as well. I thought it was a grand spectacle that was so original and executed so fantastically. Um, I think people going into it are like, "Ooh, is this going to be Jordan Peele's Close Encounters?" But coming out of it, it's more Jordan Peele's Jaws, if anything. Or um, King Kong. Um, Oh, yes, or King Kong. I just thought it was exceptional. Uh, the cast were absolutely terrific. And my God, it's good to see Michael Wincott back.
1: Here, yeah. Hey, yeah.
3: That too. <laughs> of course. <laughs> my number seven is 3,000 Years of Longing. Now, hmm. this, the latest film from George Miller is an intimate two-hander, which sees Tilda Swinton's lonely scholar, Unleash, unleash a Djinn, played by Idris El- Elba, the djinn offers free wishes, but the scholar, she knows the tales. She knows, oh, if I get if I make a wish, something bad's going to happen to make me regret it. So she's reluctant to make them. So the two of them in this hotel room swap stories. And I thought it was a fantastic tale of lovelorn souls sharing their past woes with love. And the stories just whisk audiences away to celebrate the power of storytelling, along with a brilliant score by Junkie XL, I just thought it was exceptional. And it's nice to see George Miller um, take a more smaller, intimate approach after revitalizing action cinema with *Mad Max: Fury Road*. I hope in after furiosa he still gets to make films like this that's not just come on man max again and again and again but and happy feet come on he's got two french faces (laughs) yeah he does do happy feet Uh, but (laughs) yeah um i just thought three thousand years of longing was exceptional and extremely my shit
4: yeah, I was a big fan of that as well. I thought it was thoroughly intriguing. It was dazzlingly inventive, and it works, I think, as a real world fairy tale of tales. Um, it says so much about how, and I think it resonated with me very much as well um, because one of the central characters is an academic who is very much, you know, focused on um, their work and what their work does for them. And I was like, oh, it me. I felt seen. Um, <laughs> I must uh, remember to look in more. Uh, random bottles. Who knows? Who knows what I'll find? Yeah, three thousand years of longing was both might provoke the mind and t- um, touching the heart. I thought. Well, I suspect my number seven is going to crop up on other people's lists a bit higher because my number seven is well, look wherever you want at any time in any place, and it's there because it's everything, everywhere, all at once. <laughs> this is um, in a year where we had um, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Taking us into the multiverse of madness, here we had even more madness. I think with through the domain of multiverses, as we focus on um, Evelyn, played by the incredible Michelle Yeoh, um, as an uh, who is swept up into this insane multiverse adventure, and only she can save the world, or should that be worlds, by exploring other universes that connect with the lives she could have led. This is a movie that absolutely demands close attention, because if you take your attention off it, you're going to be like, wait, what? How, sorry, how, what? Who? How, what? Yeah, like that. But focus on it and concentrate, and it is an extraordinary, bonkers, and brilliant bonanza um, of concepts and cinematic invention, while at the same time, doesn't ever, I think, go into the territory of being too clever um it's not doing um it's not uh, doing any sort of nudge nudge wink wink at you it's also making sure that it's being thoroughly emotional at all times that it's heart it's kind of about a relationship um between a mother and daughter um and yet along with the way it manages to be not only deeply emotional and massively um uh, cerebral but also um Pretty philosophical, as it is ultimately about finding um, the meaning of existences. Um, yeah, so that is it. Is um, directed by the um, uh, the Daniels, Dan Kwan and Daniel Scheinert. Um, also features um, other performers, including Stephanie um, Hsu and um, Kiyu Hwan and James Hong and Jamie Lee Curtis in a lovely um, role. It'll make you look at. Um, hot dogs in a different way, I think, Um, as well as googly eyes. um, And of course, let us not forget um, the the interdimensional bagel. Yeah, Uh, these are just a few of the crazy things that go into this movie. And it could so easily have been a complete mess that didn't work. But I mean, for me, it worked brilliantly. Yeah, that's my number seven, everything, everywhere,
5: all at once. Yeah, it's much higher on my list. I mean, we have to talk about the makeup and the costumes, which are extraordinary. And I'm kind of furious that it doesn't appear to have made, it certainly hasn't, the makeup hasn't made it onto the Oscar shortlist. But they are they are incredible. It's Dubai uh, Tupaki, I think is the, na- the name of the character. I mean, her costumes throughout are the most extraordinary thing. She's changing throughout It's an incredible film. It's an incredible film. I really loved Swiss Army Man, which was one of their earlier films, which didn't get much love. And they are weird and wonderful. I love that it centers Michelle Yeoh as, um, you know, a middle-aged woman. And it's all about the villain of this film is depression. I mean, that's it. There is no other villain. The villain is depression. And the villain is also about finding contentment in your life. Michelle Yeoh's character has started a million different things and never compl- finished any of them because she doesn't have enough belief in herself that she can do it. And this film comes along and shows her that she can. And it's all about finding contentment. I'm very happy that uh, Kihu hoo Kwan has gotten a role that he entirely deserves. They shoot him in various different sequences, sort of shot for shot, that he looks like he's in in the mood for love. Which I think is beautiful when they have him dressed up in the tuxedo and he's smoking outside. It's it's a wonderful performances from all of them. It centers it's very rare, to be honest, to see a Pure Asian family again being centered in this way. Even rarer to have, you know, your your male and female lead be sort of a couple in their I guess we're supposed to assume they're in their fifties or sixties. That's not something you have. Uh, to have I've never been so overwhelmed by little rocks with googly eyes on and I've never so much wanted those two lovely sausage fingered ladies to have their happy ever after it's it's a beautiful film but the it's kinetic filmmaking but it's the the makeup and the costumes especially are extraordinary in this
3: I adore this film. It's much, much higher on my list. I think it's very much a film which has its cake and eats it. It can take ideas from, say, wish fulfillment or absolutely silliness and just treat them with the same level of sincerity. Or it will draw inspirations from In the Mood for Love and Ratatouille, as well as it does from silly Rat-cun-y. YouTube videos. And <laughs> Rat and And it the way it puts the same amounts of thrill and emotion into them. It's a film which can deliver some of the year's best fight sequences. And the people fighting have awards stuck up their asses. It's a film which combats nihilism with Paddington levels of kindness. And I just adore everything about it.
5: Yeah, I think my favourite line of it is when, in the, in the world in which she is a movie star when he says to her in a different world, I would have loved running a laundrette with you. I thought that was just so beautiful because it's all about finding contentment with what you have. Hmm. Oh dear.
1: Here to underline that, we've kind of hated it, but kind of hated it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, what do you know? All opinions.
5: Just stepping on the was... line there, bro.
1: <laughs> it's a divisive style that the, the Daniels have got and you either get on with it or it just gives you a headache. And yeah. I think the best person in that movie is the editor because he made it somehow coherent. But, you know. Fair enough. <laughs> there we go. Uh, my number six has already been mentioned, so it'll be quick. Um, nope, a movie which gets better the more I think about it, really. And what I like about it is it's sort of, it's so counter to what you'd expect a blockbuster to be. It has like the traditional setup of what a normal blockbuster would be, but it's played so low-key and the character's so realistic. And to see how they would react in this hyper stylized crazy scenario i think it just it feels like a breath of fresh air that i think blockbuster sci-fi horror hasn't had in very very long time and has a few of the best scenarios of the year i think the blood rain scene is unforgettable really um and puts to bed any idea that it's not a horror film because that scene is is exquisite really but um yeah i agree with everything else that's been said about that one and Op is a great one, and it's uh, free for free with Jordan Pale.
2: So my number six is a film right back from the start of the year, back in January, and that is Boiling Point. Um, it's got a fantastic uh, central performance with Stephen Graham. It's all shot in, in one take during a service in a, a busy restaurant. The head chef, played by Graham, is uh, an alcoholic. He seems to be going through some sort of... Break up with with his wife the restaurant's in a bit of trouble that night they've got a, an old chef friend who's become like some big tv darling who suddenly turns up there's a, an engagement that's going to happen and there's somebody with an allergy there's a, a horribly racist member of uh member of the public in for a table and as somebody whose first job was as a waitress, this film gave me just so much PTSD. I was just it was just such a traumatic experience to sit and and watch and relive because I've seen all those customers, I've seen all those all those types of staff and I have worked with them and it was horribly uncomfortable. But I just think you can't fault the creation and the performances within it. They they were supposed to shoot eight, eight times. They're supposed to do eight takes um, from start to finish, but the pandemic rocked up just um, as they were supposed to go into performing. So they only did four. They decided to cut short because they didn't want to risk anybody uh, getting ill and they wanted to keep everybody safe. So they did four takes and of the four, that is the third take. So they ended up doing an extra one for absolutely no reason. Uh, but I just think it's it's like it, the camera moves like ballet, and Stephen Graham is just phenomenal in anything that you put him in. And this, to anybody that's has worked in a restaurant, it is just it is a horror film. It is just I I didn't it, I couldn't sleep that night. I was so anxious and just angry. And yeah, it's it, it's a film that that really really did affect me. Uh, quite a lot
5: so my six number six is uh, a recent entry because the approach I took with my list uh, is basically films that I can see myself re-watching endlessly and so it is the sublime and completely ridiculous Glass Onion which I've completely loved I mean, I have seen Knives Out about 10 times now it's fantastic I love how much fun Daniel Craig is having is Benoit Blanc and this obviously this particular one sees Benoit Uh, off on a deserted island, as all good murder mysteries should be, in the middle of a terrible storm again, as they all should be, with a Rhodes gallery of genuinely terrible people headed up by Ed Norton, who is sort of playing Elon Musk, but really an amalgam of everybody who's been horrendous in the news over the past few years. It's been very funny watching everybody get very furious over the fact that he's supposedly playing musk when ryan johnson has said actually he isn't but the fact that you're all claiming that he's he's this idiot billionaire (laughs) says more about you than it does about me and he has to solve a murder and it is it's too long which is a recurring theme. It needs a good 20 minutes shaved off it. There are some super indulgent cameos, but it's great. I mean, Daniel Craig is just having so much fun. He went on a bit of a journey with Bond. He clearly wasn't enjoying himself. Before Bond, he was always a great character actor. And I think people really forget that because he just got sort of stuck into Bond for so long. That's all anyone's ever saw him as. But he is a fantastic actor and always was. And he is clearly having the time of his life playing Ben Benoit Blanc. Uh, he's so brilliantly dressed throughout. He uh, looks wonderful throughout the entire thing. The costumes are incredible. I'm deeply depressed at the number of people who think he has a butler or a roommate rather Absolutely than his not. obvious yes. boyfriend or husband, played by the luminous Hugh Grant, stood there with a sourdough starter. Possibly the most, the best pandemic set film I've seen. Um, the whole cast is great. Uh, Kate Hudson is hilarious. The line about where where uh, the very long suffering Jessica Henrick says, "Please don't tell me you thought that a sweatshop was somewhere where you made sweats" is amazing. <laughs> but it's Janelle Monet who is just luminous. At about the hour mark, I was like, "Oh, they've really wasted." Oh because then we go back to the structure that was the first film of kind of showing what happened what happened before Benoit arrived. And I think she is, I mean, she is extraordinary in this. She's a very gifted actress. She looks luminous throughout. Her costumes are incredible, and she really is the beating heart of it. Ed Norton is clearly having a very, very good time playing Mr. Musk, um, he's having a riot. Catherine Han is always incredible quality in anything that she's in, and I really do love Dave Bautista. I feel that he is doesn't get enough credit for the work that he does. I think he was he's been brilliant in a lot of things I've seen him in. I'm going to be intrigued to see him in the new M Night Shyamalan. Um He was phenomenal in in uh, Blade Runner twenty forty nine, but yeah, he is uh, he's. He's playing with exactly what you would expect a sort of men's rights influencer to play, but he has, they're all having a great time. It's silly. It's glossy. It costs too much. It's on for too long, but I will probably have rewatched it twice by the time we get to New Year's Day.
4: (laughs) Yep. It's uh a, it's enormous fun, night, night, Glass Onion, twisty, interweaving. It's deliciously entertaining. And it's got, a, I think, a nice level of um, satirical wit um, and uh, sticking it to the privileged, as you say. You know, A whole bunch of thoroughly awful people. And frankly, you're just wondering, could more of them die, maybe? Yeah. <laughs>
5: could have, could have, could have like, shoved in just a little bit more of an extra murder would have been good. Mm.
3: <laughs> yeah, I thought it was a bit baggier than its predecessor, yeah, but the way any minute shaving. Mm, but the way it all came together in the end just felt immensely satisfying, and Ryan Johnson is just—it's—he's such a good writer, I think. And there's especially a line at the end involving the Mona Lisa, which I thought was just exquisitely done and. If we can get a Benoit Blanc mystery every few years, please.
1: I think he's happy to. He seems really content doing it. Does Daniel Craig?
5: I think they're signed up for another one. But I think, I mean, the fact that Craig, you know, Craig was was kind of responsible for for making Benoit queer. You know, it's it's he's very he loves this character, and you can see because if he wouldn't, he, he wouldn't be wandering around in like that wonderful blue and white sucker romper that he gets into the swimming pool in. He adores the character, so I think yeah, hopefully we will see many more Benoit Blanc mysteries.
2: Hmm. Yeah, and as long as they all feature Noah Sagan again, I will... Uh, oh, well, that was yeah. brilliant.
5: I was so happy to just kind of see him wandering around in the background. That was great.
2: <laughs> My number
3: six is The Worst Person in the World. Uh, now, this story follows Julie, who's, after a bit of soul-searching, decides becomes an aspiring photographer. But really, she's worrying about her place in life because... Her 30th birthday is approaching, and she's just left feeling directionless and unsure about what to do with her life. And I think it's a really interesting tale about doubting yourself as a significant milestone looms over you. And it's at that point where you're comparing yourself to, say, your parents, your grandparents, other people who reached that same age and accomplished more grand things than you have as you approaching that age and i think it's an exceptionally directed film there's this moment involving a run across town where time just stands still which is beautifully shot while also capturing julie's desires so very well and key to it is renata i oh god i hope i didn't butcher that i think she's exceptional in the lead role and the way she expresses the messiness of life and how maybe people approach significant things in not the most clean way we could but I think she's just a tour de force throughout and it's a poignant tale about the uncertainty of the paths taken in life I just thought it was an exceptional film and my number six is the worst person in the world
4: Hmm. yeah i um, i do a top 12 for my own purposes and the worst person in the world was my personal number 11 um yeah it's whimsical yet scabrous sentimental but honest it's beautifully observed and it's this fantastic and as i think the word you use there james meticulous is absolutely right it's a meticulous portrait of the messiness and the complexities and the contradictions of career relationships family and so much it's notable i think that several of the films that we have um, been highlighting are those that hey guess what they're about life and all of the nuttiness that comes along with it yeah it's it's superb that one
1: hmm. uh, number 6 vincent
4: my number six also takes us back to the beginning of the year. I had to check; it um, did actually get its UK release on the twenty first of January. Um, is Nightmare Alley Guillermo del, Guillermo del Toro's update um, of um, a much uh, 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 of a novel and an earlier um, of an uh, and an earlier film co-written by, by Del Toro and Kim Morgan. Um, Nightmare Alley concerns a, a grifter played by. Um, Bradley Cooper, and he works his way from low-ranking carnival worker to a lauded psychic medium. Um, and then he encounters a um, psychologist who is bent on exposing him, played by the magnificent Kate Blanchett. And then we move into areas of contr- of confidence tricksting and um, potential heists and you know, what can we do with the with – the, what can we get out of the very wealthy – um, and what we have in Nightmare Alley is it, it's a modern noir. It takes um, what you what filmmakers would make in when a, a film noir um, or what we now refer to as film noir from the nineteen forties and fifties, but updates it where we've got modern sensibilities and you can push the boundaries a lot more. Um, and It works in something that it it is sumptuous and it is suffusive. It creates this really tactile um, kind of sleazy world. It's the the detail and the style is both ravishing and immersive. Um, and I felt myself, you know, just totally absorbed into this world throughout. Um, and despite, and you know, and felt a little bit like ugh, ugh, this feels a bit icky here. But what the hell, I'm enjoying it, so I'm going to stick with it. Um, it's you know, so it's got fantastic um, tale of deceit and deception and dark desire, um, cracking cast. I mentioned. Um, Bradley Cooper we've also got uh, and Kate Blanchett there's also Willem Dafoe, Tony Collette, Richard Jenkins, Rooney Mara, Mary Steenburgen, Ron Perlman of course, um, David Strathern, um, Peter McNeil, um, it's a really remarkable um, cast there all assembled and delivered with the same, with the sort of um, all consuming cinematic quality that we've come to expect from Guillermo del Toro. Um, Yeah, it was absolutely wonderful um, experience that I really need to venture down Nightmare Alley once again, methinks. That's my number six.
1: Mm, Not the Guillermo del Toro I thought you would have went with, but (laughs) he's had a busy year. Yeah. So there we are, concluding my 10 to 6 with my illustrious and fantastic guests. I now hand back over to the proprietor of Pop Screen,
0: Graham. Yes, for our half of the show, I've been joined by Cliff. Hello. Oliver. Hi. And Andrew. Evening. So, without much further ado, uh, does anyone in particular want to go first?
6: So, my number 10. um, I thought, because this is going out on the pop screen feed, I'd try and find a little musical connection for... Each of the list, each of the films on my list here. So appreciate um, we, the effort. Yeah, well, I mean, I, you, well, you decide after I've said it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> number ten um, is broadcast signal intrusion, which stars, of course, Harry Shum Jr., which is a bit like Harry Connick Jr. So
0: <laughs> you know what you I said, like? effort. Yeah. <laughs>
6: Um, so it was on lots of people's lists last year, I think, because it played quite a few sort of horror festivals uh, towards the end of 2021. But it actually came out in February this year. Or, sorry. <laughs> it's too late to say this year, isn't it? It's now yeah. You know what I mean? It came out in February 2022. It's brilliant. It's, it's a really creepy kind of 70s paranoid thriller uh, kind of movie about a guy who um, dis- well, he-, he hears about various broadcast signal intrusions inspired by the Max Hedrum events in wherever that was. Can't remember, Canada? Um, uh,
0: I think that was an American thing, yeah. Um,
6: uh, oh, yeah, yeah, Philadelphia or something, perhaps. Anyway, um, investigates and, um, yeah, winds up in a whole world of weirdness. It's really good. Scary. Probably the scariest yeah. film on my list, actually.
0: That You surprised
7: me. Well, I guess we'll see, Yeah. I've
8: actually
7: never heard of that film,
8: so sounds interesting. I have to mm. say, I've never, literally, never heard of it. At all. Yeah, I caught it this year as well. Apparently, it's a should be a good double feature with Biberian Sound Studio. Oh, right. yeah, that
6: kind of makes sense. It's, they're very different sort of films, but um, mm. but yeah, you you could you could double bill them, and yeah, have a lovely kind of throwback no. uh, <laughs> evening of weird horror. Yeah,
0: shall I go next? Because I've managed to blow a hole in the structural integrity of a top 10 list by putting something that I'm not sure should be on my top 10 list. But I think there may come a point in the future where if I don't put After Sun by Charlotte Wells on my top 10 for 2022, I will think, that's really weird. Why did you not do that? Because when I first saw it, I wasn't entirely on board with it. I think largely because other people had described it like it was one of those sort of mass blessing events that you used to get in evangelical churches where everyone falls on the floor and starts speaking in tongues. And I watched and I thought, yeah, it's nice, like that. But the more I think about it, the more it worms its way into my head. It's doing things with nostalgia that are far more interesting and complex and evocative than anything else that's being done with nostalgia in cinema at the moment with its use of particular memory triggers like VHS tape and Popular hits of the 90s appearing in uh, forms that you may not recognize. And I also quite like the fact that it's a film that reminded me quite strongly of Alan Resnay, uh, that seems to have done gangbusters business. Like you, you can put this in front of people who don't normally watch quote unquote art house films. And it seems to really work for people. And it just reminds you that actually if you've got something that's emotional enough and that has a theme that people can relate to enough, people don't care that much if a film is quote-unquote arty. You know, the mass audience can get into this stuff, and that's made me feel really happy and optimistic. So yeah, number 10-ish, kind of, <laughs> probably in the future, After Sun.
8: Seems to be like a recent bit of buzz, hasn't it? I've said a lot in the mm. past kind of, couple of weeks, at least, anyway. Yeah. Definitely,
0: yes. And I think that the film has attracted a lot of attention because it is in part a love letter to Paul Mescal's arms. And, you know, a lot of people are into that guy right now. But uh, like I say, the more I turn it over in my head, the more I
8: enjoy it. Hmm. My number 10 is The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. Ah which is from, uh, I've got it written down here, Tom Gormacken, which I don't know a lot of what he's done. Uh, I had a, a quick scan. He was involved in Movie 43 somehow, which isn't good. Um, <laughs> but this is probably the best buddy comedy movie I've seen in a long time. Nick Cage is great in it, but Pedro Pascal just absolutely steals it. It um, just as heartwarming drug dealer a uh, hot woman cartel member um there's it's just great fun nick cage is going full cage within cage um it's such a strange setup there's he's basically a, a just a, a brief plot as he's basically Invited to the island by this cartel, head of the cartel, because he's a fan of him and he wants to make movies with Nick Cage. and Yeah, of course. Um, And it just kind of spirals from there, but it is essentially the relationship of Nick Cage and Pedro Pascal's Javi. Um, And the two of them in it together are just wonderful. There's a particular scene where they're watching Paddington 2, I think was used to uh, advertise the movie. Um, And it's just great the the two of them just absolutely bounce off each other. You also get like Tiffany Haddish and Sharon Horgan make brief appearances. Um, Neil Patrick Harris and David Gordon Green randomly. Um, <laughs> just an absolute a movie. Absolutely a warm hug is maybe the way I describe it. I never got around to that one, but I would like to see it one day. Mm. I think it's on Prime just now. Oh, okay, yeah, okay. I think it's on Prime. Worth well worth your time, and it's yeah, it's just a great great fun. So. We come to you, Oliver. My number
7: 10 is Hong Sang-soo's In Front of Your Face, a South Korean film, which is actually the second film he's made this year with an actor called Lee Haeyoung. He plays in this film a sort of middle-aged woman who returns to South Korea from America and attempts to rekindle her acting career. And Hong Sang-soo actually technically released four films in 2022. Although I think this is the only one that actually got a UK release. The other ones, I think, have only been released in America or at um, Film Festival, which is, you know, a shame because I've seen a few of the, the non-UK release ones and they are also very good. Um, he's released, I, I think maybe 10 films in the last five years or something. He's on an incredible work rate. And, um, this was one of the films he made, uh, in, in like sort of COVID uh, restrictions. And you can tell, you know, it's very basic. There's like five characters. Just the same camera angle every time. It uses this like really, really old digital camera, which kind of like has this like weird effect where like things aren't in focus properly, and like the backgrounds are like weird colours. And um, yeah, you can tell it's been done on a on virtually no budget, um, but it's very realistic, uh, very talky, very enjoyable. Hong Sang Soo, I think, is one of those directors where if you like one of his films, probably gonna like them all because for better or worse, they are literally all the same, <laughs> essentially um and yeah i really liked it and I uh, hope the novelist film which will go on to sort of things that didn't make our list um i, I saw that and it hasn't come out yet but it's it's really really also really really good and hopefully gets a, a uk release soon um as with any of his other films that haven't come out yet but and, i think um, so I, I think by the time they get uk releases he'll probably made about three more films <laughs> <laughs> that will be out in america so
0: a man dedicated to make the end of year lists as challenging as possible for his fans. There, I think.
7: Yeah, I, I saw some lists where, um, like one of the one of the websites I've done some right I've started writing for recently. Um, I think all three made the top twenty five.
8: Right. So, <laughs> so is there a, a, a Takashi Miike. You know, like one hundred and twenty movies or something he's done, and yeah, yeah well, like Breakfast. <laughs>
7: <laughs> I don't think he's. I don't think he's as prolific as Takashi Miike, but. Um, I, I think I, who although certainly up there definitely
6: i didn't recognize the name actually but he may the, the one film of his i have seen is the woman who ran that's really good
7: back over to you
0: cliff uh, number nine
6: uh yeah so my number nine is the Innocents," directed by Eskil Vault, which is an anagram of tori amos if you speak um,
0: <laughs> that's a much better pop screen connection i love that <laughs>
6: um okay so this film is about well it's kind of like a uh, an art house superheroes film it's about uh four young children who find that they have kind of tele- telepathic psychic connections and superpowers um but they're bad they're bad people or at least one of one or two of them are the performances are so good out of these young children it's as if celine sharma who also has that that power it's as if she she's th- that power for evil um <laughs> It's really good. It made me wince a lot. The violence, for some reason, the just—I mean, I don't even like kids, but watching children being violent to each other in really nasty, brutal ways it really makes me wince more than when you see adults doing it in films. And it's so easy to—you can imagine, like, if there's a Hollywood remake, them just not even bothering with the children thing and making it about teenagers in a high school instead—it would be the easy, lazy option. Um, But it would—it would kill it. So that's The Innocents, my number nine.
0: My number nine is a film that I suspect we'll hear you a fair bit about on either this or Rob's half of the recording. It's uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once by Daniels. There are two of them. They're called Daniel. They are Daniels. Uh, Really pleased that I saw this before... It became this sort of weird football to kick around on film Twitter. As far as I'm aware, there's like a there's a great anxiety on film Twitter about whether the fans of this movie are uh, too like earnest or too excited about the film they love, and it's like, have you ever loved a film? It's sort of what you do. I I was not sure how well I was going to click with this when I was watching it. The beginning is very hyperactive. The fact that one of the co-directors discovered he had ADHD by making this film is the most utterly logical piece of movie trivia I've heard this year. I think what really makes it work for me is two things. Firstly, the sheer construction of it. I mean, every apparently stupid throwaway joke that happens at the start turns out to be like intimately connected to how the film ends. And it's a really ingenious piece of structuring that I really admired. And the other thing is, of course, the performances, uh, it's great seeing Michelle Yeo have a role where she gets to do absolutely everything You know that we know she can do. She gets to be funny. She gets to be emotional. She gets to sing. She gets to beat the living shit out of a whole room full of people armed only with a stapler. You know, it's it's everything that you want from a Michelle Yeo role, uh, but also the people around her are great too. Big shout out to Stephanie Hsu as her daughter, who I think we'll be seeing an awful lot more of and yeah i don't care if it's not cool anymore i really enjoyed everything everywhere all at once number nine
6: it's um there are things about it i like um probably most notably michelle yeah's performance um she's great screen presence but it's not my sort of thing at all that whole multiverse thing i just couldn't help just see how many when you've got infinite infinite universes it just means there's infinite plot holes um (laughs) and Uh, And also the ending is just way too sentimental for my taste and goes on for about three days. Um, So ultimately I didn't enjoy it, but uh, I can see why people do. It's certainly one of the most creative films of the year.
8: My number nine is a Disney Plus horror, but not that one. Um, uh, It's Fresh. Ah. Which stars Daisy Edgar Jones as Noah and everyone's favourite Metal Armed Assassin from the MCU, Sebastian Stan, as Steve. This was a really well marketed movie. I think it was one of the earlier ones of Disney Plus, maybe starting. Obviously, they've got Star Play over here, whatever it is, the, the segment of the Disney Plus app is over here. But it was them fully kind of advertising the more adult side mm. of their content on their main their main feed it has the longest opening sequence before the title I think that I've seen for a (laughs) a very long time I think it's maybe about half an hour in before you actually get the title of the movie basically because it becomes a different movie from what you've been watching for the first half hour Um, it starts out as a rom-com and Edgar Jones and Sebastian Stan are fantastic together in it, great chemistry. Um and then it becomes something completely different and weird and disturbing. Something that is I think I think the themes of it have kind of crept up in a few movies this year. Um but it's also interesting as well. This is the, the first one in my list anyway that is good it's a female director and a female writer. So it's maybe written from a more aware perspective of the subject matter. As out there as the subject becomes there is that kind of um, underlying understanding of leading in to. I'm trying not to give it away. It's really difficult yes. to kind of describe. I don't know if you've seen it or not. Um, but yeah, I thought it was fantastic and a really, a really interesting take on something that can be quite well worn, I think, at times as well. Mm. I I really enjoyed the first half hour before the opening title. <laughs> yeah. it, it was it,
6: it sort of leans into realism and uh, believability, and then as soon as it shifts into horror mode, um, it not just becomes unbelievable, but I felt like the director and the script didn't actually care what was happening to the two main characters in it. Mm. Um, it was very kind of flippant, more interested in needle drops and you know memeability. Uh, I found it it just wound me up in the end. Um, <laughs> uh, just, a film that just fell out of my fell outside my top 10 um a wounded form of fawn even a wounded fawn does the exact same premise much better in my opinion
8: that's actually in my honourable mentions as well. I wanted yeah. fun. Um, ah. Yeah, that was a really interesting take. But yeah, I, I totally get it. I just had a lot of fun with it again. I think I've, I'm looking at my top 10, and it seems to be, I'm going to say, I had a lot of fun with this. <laughs> 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 I think after, after sure.
0: the last couple of years, we have all learned the right to have movies that we can have a lot of fun with. Yeah, exactly. Oliver, you're number nine.
7: An interesting one for me um, because. He's a director who I never thought I would ever say anything positive about, let alone include them in a top 10 list. But my favorite, or well, my ninth favorite film of the year is 13 Lives by Ron Howard, which is the fictional adaptation of the uh, Tham Leung, Leung Cave Rescue in Thailand, um, which was a documentary a few years ago. I had heard, I had a few, a few friends who would have seen this and all said it was um, actually really great. Um, even though it was, it's by Ron Howard, who is just, you know, without, <laughs> without being too mean, just an a terrible director for most, in most instances, I've, from what I've seen. Um, but yeah, this film is, is really good, actually. I think the thing that's good about it is that Ron Howard is one of those directors who just like tries to make everything as sentimental as possible. It feels really manufactured. Um, but this story kind of has a natural sentimentality to it that doesn't feel cheap because it's about sort of this heroic story. Um, mm. And also the the, the the second reason why this film I think is so good is that the cinematography was done by, can't again, it's a it's a name I'm not going to be able to pronounce, Seambu Mukdiprom, who is the DP for another name I can't pronounce, mm-hmm. Apichapong, don't know how you say it. Apichapong with a Might be oh, hearing yes. that name again. Yes, later well, you on, will definitely be hearing that name again from me specifically me but um i think okay. i think in most he's called he says called himself joe actually i think most yes english yeah interviews. um yeah he's the dp for him and he makes the film look beautiful um you know lots of incredibly you know shots that you would find in one of his films kind of leak their way into this ron howard film which which often feels very strange you know it has these kind of it's kind of dreamy sequences of, of thailand and these caves and all these like sort of Ca- captures everything so beautifully. Um, and the performances are great. The score is great. The story is just, is, you know, it's an interesting story. um Many, I, I've seen a few people say it feels like a Clint Eastwood film, which I would not, you know, I wouldn't argue with that. It does kind of have that very matter of fact kind of feel to it. You know, like it has, it's just like it's a very sturdy, well made, well looking film. Uh, it's not doing anything out, you know, anything crazy, but it's just incredibly well made, really enjoyable and also has a you know it's hard to not feel emotional when you see these terrified kids like pulled out of the water and it all works yeah. so yeah that's mm-hmm. uh, so i you know it's I think, uh, you know, don't be put off by it because it's by Ron Howard. Is, <laughs> I'm saying. I
0: am very enticed by the prospect of Ron Howard with a touch of chat pong with a That's a yeah. fusion cuisine we never <laughs> knew we needed.
8: It seems to be, Ron Howard, this this kind of aggressively, I think I heard a phrase, ag- aggressively three-star movie maker. He's <laughs> <laughs> just a safe pair of hands that if you want something quite, basic and by the numbers, but this sounds like he's actually went out, his, maybe went out his comfort zone a bit more.
7: Yeah. I mean, I, I think a, a three-star director is <laughs> maybe overselling. <laughs> <laughs>
8: um
7: Considering the guy who did what, Angels and Demons and the Da Vinci
8: Code. Uh yeah. Um, oh, I've got it, then.
7: And he'll be Elegy, he'll be allergy, he'll be two years, like three years ago as well, which is notorious oh, oh. now because the uh, writer of the book is actually a Republican senator or Congressman. Yes. Yeah. Um, but this this film makes up for him. Mm. <laughs> all the terrible things Ron Howard has probably done. It's, this film is, yeah, I, I I don't know. Maybe maybe there is secretly Ron Howard is really great, <laughs> but I don't know if it's just a little funny.
0: maybe he's just had the wrong cinematographer all these years. So back to Cliff for number eight.
6: Um, and my number eight is a film that could genuinely be a pop screen film. Oh. Um, Yeah, genuinely. So, no jokes here. Uh, Peter Strickland's uh, Flux Gourmet. Flux Gourmet. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he's he's, he's cast a couple of um, Greek Weird Wave stars in this one. And accordingly, it's his maddest film yet. And that's saying something. It is. It's it's about a group of um, musicians ish who work with food and cookery. Uh, to create there it's, it's as if, I don't know if you've ever seen the comedian George Egg, who does stand up about using kind of household objects as as cooking implements the you know, hotel room uh, objects like, uh, you know, hotel kettle or uh, trouser press, things like that to make make a nice dinner. It's as if uh, George Egg decided to go down the route of Einstein and Einstein and Nybauten rather than stand up <laughs> comedy. Uh, that's what this group do. Um, they're followed around by a um a greek journalist who seems to be writing an article on them but is dealing with massive flatulence problems there's a rival group that are kind of using terrorist tactics to try and push um push this group out of their residency the whole place where it takes place is run by uh Gwendolyn christie who is dressed basically in huge dresses to make a look like an absolute giant um she, she's very sexy in it it's all very weird and very funny it's totally not for everyone i don't know who it's for but i liked it a lot and um <laughs> it's got it i mean, it's got some mad gwendoline gwendoline christie saying lines like just indulge me on the flanger please i it, it's, it's great
0: <laughs> i love you I'm glad, I'm glad you ended on that note, because I, I was going to say I was sold on this film from the moment I saw the trailer and heard how Gwendolyn Christie pronounces the word investigation.
6: She's amazing in it. She had a small role in, in Fabric. Yes,
0: um, and she, which she was know, also great in.
6: Which she all. was amazing in, but now she's really been, you know, promoted. She's been, in uh, you know given a good promotion to a a major role
0: for my number eight i mean i realize it may not always seem like it but i am very alert to the danger of falling into self-parody so when someone makes a film about david bowie i need to have a solid reason to put it in my top 10 of the year Uh, and happily brett morgan's moon age daydream is just really really good It's not the kind of documentary that attempts to dig up new information on Bowie, because what could there possibly be in the vaults after the past few years? It's more trying to do two things. Firstly, an evocation of his imaginative world. We see clips from Metropolis and In the Realm of the Senses and all of the other extraordinary reference points that he brought into his music and other work. Uh, We hear him talk about his beliefs, about everything from rock stardom to the existence or non-existence of God. Um, And we also just get a sense of morgan's own personal response to this music really it's far more visually inventive than any rock documentary i've seen it's definitely trying to be the morgan version of boy's life rather than everyone else's and in doing so i think brett morgan who's made some fine films in the past has uh, really put the seal on himself as a, a completely unique documentary, and I think it's opened new possibilities for what music documentaries can be, and it's a field that Lord knows could do with a bit of innovation. Reminded me slightly of Julian Temple at his most collage you know, when he's doing stuff like The Ecstasy of Wilco Johnson, where he seems to want to cram every single influence, every social influence, every artistic influence, every autobiographical influence everything has to go in the film. And I really like that. I think it's much more interesting than hearing someone talk about, you know, how, uh, well, this album didn't sell well at first, but it picked up in America after. Yeah. Don't care. Bring on the clips of Nosferatu. That's what I say. Uh, that's Moon Age Daydream, which is my
8: number eight. I really, really want to catch that. Like I'm not, way, I'm not a huge fan of like a, I- pick-up and all the kind of major hits. Mm. It was more my dad was huge on him. It was his favourite artist ever, still is. Um, yeah. And he never got to see him. He always missed out when he played in, like, the Apollo in Glasgow and things like that. And then he had uh, tickets for Tea in the Park when he was due to headline. But then he had the stage fall, like, two months before ah. and cancelled. And that was the end. I think that was the last time he ever toured by as well. So I'm interested yes. to watch it with my dad and get his kind of... Um, uh, uh, what he thinks of it, and and I think he ended up having to watch the darkness instead of Bowie because that was the replacement headliner. <laughs> which is, I don't mind the darkness, but there's a there's a level. Yeah, I
6: I feel much the same. I'm not you know a big Bowie fan or anything, but um, that film sounds like exactly the kind of exercising tour de force editing that I really enjoy. So I ought to watch it.
0: I'd be fascinated to know what you guys thought of it. Mm. I certainly
6: don't hate his music, you know. It's not like i would been asked to watch a two-hour experimental documentary on, you know, Simon and Garfunkel. Like <laughs> <You know. laughs>
0: I must sign you up to, if we ever do The Graduate on pop screen, I'm putting
8: you That's through a good that film. now. That's
6: a good film in good spite film. Of, the, of the songs on the soundtrack.
8: <laughs> uh, Andrew? Uh, my number eight, I think, has my first kind of pop screen link, if you will, oh. Um because I think Kid Cuddy is a rapper. I don't know. I mean, mm-hmm. he, nah, is, he, he is. is yeah. He is. And it is Ty West's ex. Um, a grimy, nasty, dirty feeling movie that done really well mainstream wise. Um, mm-hmm. Ty West, I think, can be a bit hit or miss for people. I really House of the Devil. Um, I thought it was a great movie, but that was a long time. Well, a long time ago, maybe 10, 12 years ago. Um, but this is the kind of ever-watchable Mia Goth in a dual role Um, Jenna Ortega as well is fantastic in it Um, and it feels a bit kind of more, it clearly wants to be something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and it's not going to reach those heights but it feels watching a proper nasty grimy horror movie in the cinema instead of a clean cut uh, scream like we had in 2022 as well which had I liked, I enjoyed, but um having that having the mainstream access to the the really nasty side of horror was was a, a great experience just watching the cinema. Um my local cinema doesn't have a huge selection. It's mostly the big ones and some kids' movies, but it had X. Um and I was well impressed with it. I think the I think it's a beautiful looking film as well. Um just with the setting of it. The opening scene is fantastic uh, before it cuts to what leads to that scene um just a great shot from kind of outside of a barn and it cuts through and it's just a, a yeah a cracking shot a lot of tension um and some alligator horror which is always good as well <laughs> but yeah big fan of this and I said Mia ago it's fantastic um and it's been this kind of kind of secret of trilogy which he's now making and yeah. Yes. Yeah I'm, yeah. I'm into that. I've seen Peril, but I couldn't include it because it's not out here yet.
7: <laughs> nice. Over to you, Oliver. I would like to say this is my, my last blockbuster, and I was going to go on to some all sorts of weird, obscure art films, but it's not. Um, <laughs> and this this next one is one that I'm, I'm sure everyone will probably be confused by, but I think it's great. Um, Michael Bay's Ambulance, um, which is, you know, it's Michael Bay. I mean, there's not really much chance to. Say about it. You know, it's a, it's a two and a half or two two and a half hour film about an ambulance just smashing through loads of cars. Loads of drone <laughs> shots, lots of people shooting each other. Jake Gyllenhaal going just absolutely crazy. I think it was great. You know, Michael Bay is always sort of a strange director because you know the general consensus is that he's not very good. But I think over the past five years, he's had a sort of you know, I don't want to say a sort of um, revival, but I think there's a, there's definitely a certain group of people. Online and maybe in person that sort of taken Michael Bay as a tour of some kinds. Um, and yeah, I, maybe I'm, maybe I'm being persuaded to that realm. This is, yeah. yeah, just a really solid action film. You know, there's no, as, as, as was previously with 13 Lives, you know, it's not doing anything particularly different or crazy. It's just a really solid, uh, I, I'd say low budget. It's 40 mil which is pretty low for Michael Bay.
0: I was going to say, by Bay standards, yeah, that's shooting it in the back garden with a camcorder.
7: Yes, yeah, yeah. It's also pretty low for an action film, like a Mm. large-scale large large action film. Um, You can tell, actually, what I was thinking about it is the stunts still look amazing, even with the budget. Um, You know, there are lots of mainstream action films over the past five years. You know, especially with Marvel and DC and all these kind of things, have a sort of weightlessness to the action mm. because there's all just CGI. And watching Michael Bay take an ambulance and just smash it through a bunch of cars, knowing that the cars are real and everything is actually blowing up, is is something that I think you know you feel, feel a bit starved and definitely offers something I think that we've kind of been missing from it, just an action film on a, on a large scale. And yeah, it has an has an interesting story. You know, it's not anything complicated, um, and there's a, there's a there's a great scene where they um it's kind of like a needle drop moment where they 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 both put AirPods in and they're like driving to ambulance and they, when they, whenever the scene cuts away the music dies and then as soon as it comes back the music comes back on because they they're listening to it and there is just you know lots of clever little filmmaking moments like that yeah I think it's oh, and yeah. also has loads of drone shots and uses I think maybe ten drones in this film <laughs> and the drones are honestly going crazy which is well, great
6: that's probably see, why I the budget is so low yeah, well yeah. <laughs>
7: No, I, I think I, it must be because, you know, there's shots where previously you would have needed like a, a crane on a on another car or a mm. van or something driving alongside them, which obviously take, you know, loads of money doing that, mm. where they've just got probably got like a, an 18 year old, like flying a drone, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, some like whiz kid, like just like flying a drone next to his cars. And, you know, they're so much cheaper. So, mm. you know, it really is, uh, you know, maybe we're seeing sort of innovations in play, really.
8: Mm hmm. I I saw a heavy drone movie this year with the Grey Man, which just seemed to want to use drone shots for every, for basically every setup scene. And it um, was—I've not seen Ambulance, so I would assume it's not done as well. But it was pretty uh, dizzying at times. (laughs) Some of it—it was like going around a mansion and zooming in through a window, and
0: yeah, I've got to say. uh... We are still close enough to the Velvet Underground podcast that I did with Oliver for me to take a second to reset my brain every time someone sees drones. <laughs> I just have to have a moment. Where, oh, the flying thing. Yes, of course.
6: I would yeah. like to see a moratorium on those shots uh, directly above a car driving through a forest on a windy road. <laughs> it's like every, every bloody horror film has it these days. It's in Fresh, for example.
0: Yeah. Uh... Well, g- give give us something better than Cliff. What's your number seven?
6: Uh, my number seven. Um, f- struggling to find a pop screen style connection <laughs> with this one, but uh, I think I've corrected. it. It's Crimes of the Future by David Saxophoneenberg. Um, <laughs> <it's, laughs> um Now, as soon as this started, I was I just got huge throwback vibes to his Naked Lunch existence era, and you probably have to be predisposed to really liking that stage of his career to to get to get what you can get out of crimes of the future because it's it's just like those films really um the uh the production design the weird organic um furniture and things like that um it's about a guy who a performance artist he, he sort of suffers from or is exploiting his accelerated evolution syndrome which means he grows extra organs and they can be removed in, in, uh, kind of th- uh, theatrical performances and he'll just grow new ones for the next time. Uh, and this brings him to the attention of some shady, uh, organizations. There's some I, I don't want to spoil the best revelation in it because it's, it's so good. <laughs> it's just, it sort of all <laughs> makes sense. It makes absolutely perfect sense in our kind of environmentally conscious world, but it's just so out there that. Only, only a, 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 I'd say, a Cronenberg. Only a Cronenberg. Either of them could really mm-hmm. come up with it. Um, you know, surgery is the new sex. Is the is one of the slogans of this film. Just like you know, the yeah, you know, the old new flesh thing back in the Videodrome drone days. Um, I mean, it's just classic Cronenberg. It's it's great. I loved every minute.
0: It's the only film I've ever seen which contains a scene which could be described as autopsy sex game. Which yeah. is it's important <laughs> to celebrate innovation in cinema. I think absolutely.
8: Yeah, I
7: yeah. Yeah. I, I have this film um, much higher up my list. I saw
8: Cronenberg for the first time this year. Actually, I'd never seen a Cronenberg movie this oh, year. Last marvelous. year, sorry. Yeah, I done an episode um, with Amber from the Hornbud Fire Podcast, and she picked Cronenberg as a director. So we discussed um, The Fly, Videodrome, and Crash, and it was interesting. Yeah, oh, first time for me.
6: I'd say they're yeah. the best films actually. I have a
8: hot dig that David
7: Cronenberg has not released a single bad film. Someone can, can argue that with me that until until I die. I I, I've <laughs> seen I I've seen all of them and I don't think any of them are bad. So
6: I didn't uh, enjoy Cosmopolis or Eastern Promises. But, oh, Eastern
7: Promises, that's a tough I can I can see oh, people not like what, Cosmopolis.
6: Naomi Watts is so fucking bad in and Cos- in Eastern Promises. The,
7: the, 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 the spa scene makes up for anything. Mm. anything
8: that she does the spa scene is incredible yes yeah. <laughs> I, I wasn't massive on crash but i think oh. i'm i stand alone in that well uh, like, i didn't hate it I don't, it wasn't cra- like i was against it about the three it was my least favorite
0: yeah I, I think crash is maybe the one where you have to have more of a sort of investment in his ideas whereas what, what i love about videodrome is it works if you You know, are fascinated by Cronenberg's kind of philosophy, and it works if you just want to see something that's fucking nuts.
8: Mm. It's it's
0: got both ends of the spectrum covered.
8: This is good to see uh, James Woods in pain, (laughs) which is always a good thing nowadays.
0: Yeah, playing himself in that movie, isn't it? Pretty much, yeah. Uh, my number seven, Andrew has introduced us to uh, some retro sleaze with X and now I'm bringing it back up to the minute with pleasure, perhaps the greatest movie directed by a Swedish woman called Ninja. Uh, it's the debut film from Ninja Thyberg, tracking the career of a young woman who, uh, from Sweden who goes to America with a dream of becoming the next big porn star. And the results are, interestingly ambiguous i think thyberg's take on the porn industry to me seems to be that it's a bad system rather than any kind of a moral condemnation there are good days there she meets good people there there is even sometimes some good sex but The the system is the focus of what criticism exists in the film, the way that it takes people who were in Bella, the heroine's case, too young to really have a sense of their sexual persona and what their limits are, and forces them to push past those limits for profit and to commodify your screen personality. But you know, if you watch it and think, well, hang on. Uh, exploiting attractive young people in the service of making a lucrative screen personality isn't a million miles away from what movies do Uh, i think pleasure has you covered there anyway thyberg says that it's it's ultimately a marxist film about the compromises we make in order to work and earn money to survive uh, that happens to be set in the porn industry and i think there's something there i think there is a a degree of flexibility and ambiguity to it that I have not previously seen in a film with this subject matter. Films about the porn industry tend to be either pro or anti, usually anti, and this feels much more like a character study. It feels observed, it feels real, it is sometimes very disturbing, it is sometimes very moving, and it just feels like a massive leap forward in you know, in, in covering that territory responsibly, I thought it was terrific. Um It's strong. It was going to be distributed by A24, but they wanted an R-rated cut. And Cyberg said, lol, no, because an R-rated cut of pleasure would be like about eight minutes long. Uh, so Neon put it out instead. So, yeah, be warned, not for everyone's tastes, but can't argue with the commitment and intelligence it's made with and Sophia Kappel in the lead role is just fearless she's absolutely insane in the best possible way for doing half of this stuff uh, so that's pleasure and it's my number seven is it definitely pronounced ninja not ninja oh you've spoiled it for me now I <laughs> want it to be ninja I want to believe is when you said ninja ninja
7: <laughs> I just I just thought of Diane would <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I was as I in like, a minute.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, uh not Diane words. Uh although we did do chappy for pop screen recently, so yes, i am uh been experiencing the other ninjas screen output as well.
8: Uh Andrew? Um my next one is Man Number 7 is possibly the only found footage one we might discuss. Um, It's a Shudder original and it's um, Deadstream which was from Joseph and Vanessa Winter both writers and directors. This got again a lot of good buzz online on Twitter. A lot of people loved it. Some people, I mean, it's the premise is basic. It's a disgraced YouTuber who, to try and get his likes his followers back up, um, decides to stay the night in a haunted house. And it is watching an insufferable asshole go through a lot of torturous <laughs> um, scenarios. Uh, very heavy on the comedy, more than the horror. There's a couple of jump scares, a couple of decent wee frights in it but it goes very evil dead in the last act as well. So it's almost like a, a sort of found footage evil dead. Um again found footage is a bit of a mark for me. Um all in on it. Uh, I, I love even the shit and there's a lot of shit. <laughs> so maybe maybe my my perception of this was colored a bit by that, but they also done a uh, the the Winters also done a great section in VHS 99 this year as well. Um and I think they uh, yeah they, they knocked us out of the park. It's just a <laughs> I had fun with this. <laughs> <So> I said I'm going to get that on a fucking t-shirt. Um, it was. I just. Gee, just a ball. Like I had absolute. Joseph Winter is the main. He plays uh, Sean, who's the main character in it. His wife, Vanessa, is also the writer. There's Melanie Stone, plays Chrissy, who is a, a character who comes and goes throughout the whole story. Um, but yeah, found footage. I'm count man, basically. And um, worth checking out. Usually, found footage 80 minutes, you're in and out, it's fine, it's easy to watch. But yeah, I've absolutely loved it. I've watched it a few times this year and yeah, last year, and it was great. Completely new one on me, that hadn't even heard of it. Mm-hmm. It's decent. Like, it isn't, yeah. like, there's nothing groundbreaking about it. Um, the As I said, it's very influenced by Evil Dead and other found footage movies. Um, I think
6: the problem I had with it is that it's not groundbreaking at all. I've seen it all before. Yeah, you're, like, you're right. He is an insufferable asshole. Mm-hmm. Why should I care what happens to him? Um, yeah, wound me up again. But <laughs> I've not had a good year of horror.
8: No. I was oh, going to yeah, say, I sure. did
0: not. This is not the kind of content that I expected from you with your.
6: My, uh... my five favourite horror films of the year are all great. Every, pretty much everything else I've seen in the genre, uh, I have either reservations about or were absolute just total shit.
7: Oliver? Yeah, um, so my number seven is a film that I think was released without, with the zero marketing and zero uh, knowledge of it even being released. Um, it was released in America last year, um, but the UK release date was, was this year, March. And it's Abel Ferrara's Zeros and Ones, ah. um, which has uh, the poster and trailer that makes it look like it's uh, London Has Fallen sort of thriller. <laughs> <laughs> um however it's it's not at all anyone that's familiar with uh abel um his most recent stuff specifically the past 20 years um has been a range of weird art films um sort of he's in my opinion sort of become an american go art sort of making all these short weird dense films that have all sorts of strange plots and you know, passingly by this weird Christmas film that has like no plot at all. Very strange um, sort of career, especially after he made like just basically like sleazy New York films for twenty years. Um, the Zeros and Ones is his latest film with um, Ethan Hawke, um, and it's I I don't know what it's about entirely. It's it's about revolutions and Vatican's being blown up and uh, terrorism. Um, it's shot by, I think it's Sean William Price who did Uncut Gems. Um, it looks stunning. It uses a very low quality digital camera um, and it looks beautiful. There's, the, there's almost no artificial lighting. Everything is, is lit entirely by um, Rome, like the Roman streets of Rome. Uh, I and mean, it's all set in, at nighttime. Um, and sort of Ethan, Ethan Hawke actually plays two characters. But One is the main character, one is his brother. Um, but he kind of walks around with a, a pistol because he's a US marine or something and he also carries around like a, a handheld DSLR and he films everything on this like handheld camera and it, it cuts to the the camp between the you know the two different viewpoints um which is kind of a reoccurring theme with able sort of capturing reality on screens and having all these different kinds of cameras um yeah so it's a great film uh it's it's really not um, for everyone, as we mentioned with Flux Gourmet, it's kind of, I think it's maybe a similar sort of thing where if you, if you like Abel's kind of later stuff, you probably find something to enjoy. If you watch Siberia and welcome to New York and thought, this is all just stupid, probably not going to be sold by it. Um, but I I love everything he's done, so I, I was sold on this. Completely.
0: I think you've sold me on it. I haven't really uh, kept in touch with Ferrara's later mm. work, but I love me uh, really sort of in a good way, pretentious Antonionian anti thriller. I love me some poor quality digital video. Yeah, I rather like Ethan Hawke. I can go for this.
7: Yeah, and Antonioni is a good, a good, a good. Um, I hadn't thought of that, but that's actually quite a good comparison. And and late period Godard, like eighties and nineties, where he's sort of making really weird, dense films. Like mm. I don't know, you know, like not a video, like you know, it's not a video essay, but those kinds of. Hilapom, you know or something yes. like that yeah.
6: Yeah. yeah i don't know if ferrara consistently has distribution problems but he's a director i always mean to watch his films and whenever a new one comes out or a new one is announced or reviewed at a festival i say oh great a new ferrara film i'm definitely going to try and watch this one for yeah. a change and then by the time it's actually been released and becomes available <laughs> it just no longer seems that essential um it's like the conversation has moved on. He's made another film, perhaps. It's like that's his old film. I'd yeah. watch that. Yeah, so yeah, it, it's a real shame because the last one of his I saw was Welcome to New York, and I like that. And you know, I'm sure I, I'm sure I would like most of his films. I just don't get around to watching them. It's annoying. Yeah,
7: his films always—they're all without in America, but I think he has a lot of problems getting UK distribution. <laughs> I think it's a large part of that is that he's just not that popular in the UK. He's France, you know, France and America, Germany. He's got quite a big following, but I think in the UK, it's kind of, I don't think many people care that much, sadly. I'm
0: reminded of an interview I read with him many years ago where he was asked if he was aware, you know, after his early years, that things like uh, King of New York and Bad Lieutenant were becoming more successful. And he said, look, the movie-making environment I come up with, if you finish the film, it's a success. (laughs) <laughs> and i think yeah it's a great attitude but maybe when you come to life with that attitude you don't get the best distribution deals perhaps
6: cliff you're number six right no lie absolutely 100 percent, definitely a pop screen style film uh it's a documentary who killed the klf uh, oh
0: lovely yeah.
6: mm. um so it's <laughs> Now, the, the KLF were an odd group. Um, when I was, you know, younger and they were, they would pop in and out of the charts and have great big hits and disappear again for a few months or a couple mm-hmm. of years, or whatever, and then just re- reappear under a new guise, uh, do something else, mad, disappear again. Um, this film makes a real case for them being one of the most important British bands of the of that era. Um, the documentary supposedly – Unauthorised, and I've heard that the band sort of distanced themselves for it, don't, didn't really want anything to do with it. Um, but throughout, there are what the director, Chris Atkins, describes as recovered lost tapes of them being interviewed quite early in their career, supposedly. But as with everything with the KLF, I'm not sure about that. I, I think they might be pulling a leg a bit. I think that might be, I think it might well be an authorised documentary, and that these are new interviews that are being, yes. You know, have supposedly hmm. been rediscovered. Who knows? Who knows? Part of it felt like a footnote to Adam Curtis's "Can't Get You Out of My Head," uh, because they, uh, it turns out, were influenced by the Discordianism movement, which is, you know, has been uh, picked up by conspiracy theorists all over the world. When it was only ever meant to be a big joke in the first place. And, you know, I learned some things. I learned, um, I didn't realize, do you, I don't know if you remember the song Edelweiss by Edelweiss, the novelty dance hit that went to number one. Uh, that was written after the people who made it read KLF's manual about how to have a number one single. <laughs> and they just followed the, followed the instructions and lo and behold, had a number one single.
0: I did not know that. I love the KLF. I have very strong memories of them performing at that infamous Brit Awards where yeah. they went on with extreme, extreme noise ever
8: yeah.
0: and sprayed the crowd with blank machine gun fire. And the, later on, there was like, they they did an advertising campaign where they took out full page ads in newspapers and said, you know, we'll explain uh, why we've decided to quit the music industry if you can find a burned out Volvo on the Isle of Arran or something. I was only young but I do remember thinking, this is not how the pop bands I'm into usually behave.
6: Mm. Oh, there's a big, big uh, load of footage of that uh, and interviews surrounding that that Isle of Arran or wherever it was. Um, which just sounds absolutely insane sounds brilliant it's like the best festival you never went to (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: my number six is Licorice Pizza by Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh, I feel like every time there's a new Paul Thomas Anderson film out, I try to find something to dislike about it, just to make me sound less like a slavering fanboy, uh, and it never works, uh, because he really is very good. This sounded like his return to the kind of early Boogie Nights territory with its 70s setting, its comedy drama genre, its slightly iffy sexual politics that i think are honestly not that bad in context uh, but it's it's not this kind of film which is made for the take industry i'll put it that way if you're looking to have a negative take on it um you'd find plenty in there that you can do but a- also Why would you do that? When you watch the film, you find that the elements of it are so perfectly balanced. The way that Anderson uses his runtimes, which are longer than I normally like in a movie. He always creeps up to the two and a half hour mark, but... There seems to be something about his films that just lives at that length. It allows him to really get into the ambiguities and the eccentricities and the little strange corners of characters' behaviour that he might otherwise miss. There's a scene in this where uh, Cooper Hoffman, the marvellous son of anderson's much missed regular philip seymour hoffman is on a plane with the girl he fancies played with played by alana Hame. we have done a pop screen episode on this so you know i'm not overlooking it and she's sat opposite another boy who she has a crush on and the relationship between these three characters is delineated entirely by how they glance at each other and then glance back that There's not a word of dialogue in it. It's just filmmaking, capturing and enhancing acting. And I love it. You know, I always end up watching these shitty cinematic television shows, which just consist of people walking around explaining the plot to each other. <laughs> so to see proper visual storytelling made by someone who really understands movies. Love it. Yeah, can't get enough of it. Uh, that's Licorice Pizza. That's my number six.
7: Yeah, I think anyone who thinks the um has a you know, has a large issue with the the age gap thing has mm. never seen a French film. <laughs> 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 Every French age. film, you know, there's uh, so many oh yeah, I've seen many French films where it's like fifty year old man falls in love with like twenty or one year old woman or something. And mm. it's just like I just think it's, it was a bit it's of a bit part
0: of their know. culture, isn't it? <laughs> We've just lost all of our French listeners, but there we go, I think so. <laughs>
6: Well, it's, certainly, it's certainly one of the issues I have with uh, Hitchcock. Mm, <laughs> sure. in, um, you know, Vertigo and Rear Window can be a bit... Why? Why? What are you doing, old man? Why are you... <laughs> 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 this young lady?
8: <laughs> Andrew? Going go through these lists, I feel like my picks are so basic. <laughs> so my number six is Glass Onion, which I really loved. Um, yes. Seems to be a bit of a discourse over it on Twitter that it's Awful, and I don't know why people are going down that route. It's the second Knives Out movie from Ryan Johnson, who I learned this week actually didn't even want Knives Out in the title. He was kind of championing just calling it Glass Onion, but Netflix obviously shot all over that. Um, Daniel Craig is excellent again as Benoit Blanc absolutely hams it up. Kate Hudson is back and is fantastic in it. Her overreactions to absolutely everything, every little thing that happens. What is reality? (laughs) She's just fantastic in it. Edward Norton plays Edward Norton, just a massive dickhead. (laughs) Quite a lot of (laughs) massive dickhead things are in this. Dave Batista, I always think is great, but Janelle Monáe I think is the real standout in this. Um, She has a... Core cool sign. Cool great. Yeah, yeah. She has a, a major role in this movie um, and she owns the whole thing. Benoit Blanc is obviously the kind of glue that holds everything together and his piecing together of everything, especially kind of at two points in the movie, just absolutely had me in stitches. Like, his fury at a certain point near the end <laughs> how the whole thing has been planned or uh, not planned and that... Yeah, again this is one of these ones I'm trying to give anything away um, I think it's just a beautiful looking film as well there's random uh, appearances from Noah Sagan um, who done one of my kind of favourite Shudder originals from last year uh, Blood Relatives and he just plays this random stoner who rocks up every so often and there's hints towards what that could mean but the, there's two twists in this which I had no clue that were coming um, one that there's a reason why you wouldn't see it coming, but the second one, I just it, it, it just blew me away. Like I had I had no inkling as to what Ryan Johnson was going at with this. It's so different from Knives Out, the first one as well. There's so much of a there was a worry that it would maybe just be a rehash of the first one, but it's completely different and what he done really great with the first one. Without getting into too many spoilers, is the twist's given away in the first 20 minutes. Um, and he has done it again with Glass Onion, I think. It was possibly a wee bit too long, but a, a, a fantastic movie. A great, I would have loved to have watched this in the cinema.
0: Oh um, tell me about it. And I know
8: there was a limited release I think maybe 5 days or a week which is probably for Oscar bait. Um I th- yeah, I think that the head of Netflix,
0: Saul <laughs> Netflix has uh, <laughs> gone on record and saying they really fucked up
8: with that one week thing. It would have made so much money. It, there yeah. wasn't really anything there. Maybe you'd be at the back end of Wakanda forever. But mm. you're know, 2-3 weeks before the release of um Avatar. Avatar there was nothing that really the it would have had to have competed against, maybe the menu. But Mm. even then, that's not going to be a a huge competitor for it. Oh yeah, they massively fucked that. Um, More people, and obviously we're going to be getting a third one because Netflix have paid silly money to Ryan Johnson and I can't imagine he'll be sitting on his hands writing the third. Um, But I'm happy to watch Benoit Blanc. And there's a great cameo from Angela Lansbury right at the start as well, which was just nice linking it yeah. all together, and yeah, just fantastic. Listeners, if
0: you're thinking hmm, Janelle Monet's in this, maybe there should be a pop <laughs> screen episode on this, yeah. don't worry, we're on it, there will be yeah. a very spoilery Patreon exclusive of uh, about uh, Glass Onion later this month.
8: I could, I genuinely uh, not being able to talk spoilers in it is absolutely killing me right now, because I loved it <laughs> and I need to talk about it so much to so many people. <laughs> Who was
6: that idiot right-wing commentator who tweeted a thread oh, about how Ben um,
0: Shapiro, little right, Ben,
6: about how? I mean, I haven't seen the film, but about how all the scenes that turn out to be red herrings, complete waste of your time. Why would you put those in the film that doesn't even mean it doesn't even have anything to do with the resolution of the plot?
0: It's very inefficient not to just tell people yeah. that the murderer is straight away. <laughs> like yeah. you know, Johnson could have really cut down on the length of his film by <laughs> doing that. It
7: could have been a ten-minute film, couldn't it? Really.
0: Yeah. It, <laughs> it was, was you. I a little bell with the A24. Could of pleasure.
8: It, th- there's a couple of wee cameos in this as well that throw you off and maybe make you think there's going to be more to them. Yeah. And the one in particular on the pier, the, the, the limo driver, Um, I was sitting going, they can't have that person in this. And then just, <laughs> like, they kind of just have him in this for a scene. And just these wee cameos are just... He knows what he's doing with the movie. He knows putting these actors and these uh, characters in certain scenes is going to have you thinking all the way through, and it totally throws mm-hmm. you. Okay, so seeing it out for the pop screen... It's uh,
7: Decision to Leave by Park Chan Um mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, just, uh, you know, I'm not actually a huge fan. I've seen his earlier stuff, Old Boy, Simply the Lady of Vengeance, et cetera. And I, I don't think they're bad, but they're a bit too... Grey, bleak, depressing for me. Just yeah, just a, just a, not not fun. Not <laughs> they're the good, well-made films, but they are just a bit.
0: They're not. They're not films that you'd you'd have a good time with. No,
7: but this, but say, but, yeah. I, but I think Decision to Leave is a film that you can have a good time with. Okay, um, it's it's way more vibrant and fun and funny actually than any film I've seen by by Park Chan Wook. Um, it's like almost a rom com. I think I would be daring to say. Um, yeah, the murder mystery stuff is interesting, but the relationship between the two characters is just really great. And I think probably apart from a film I'm gonna talk about later, probably the best editing I've seen in a film all year. I think it's just oh, yeah. you know, it's just absolutely the way that every each scene sort of collapses into another scene and it does this thing where um I think there's like one one example is when the main character is like looking into the window of the woman. He's like sort of rear window, sort of kind of spying on her. And then it like sort of he he appears in that room It's like a sort of fictional like dream sequence It's not real, but it kind of plays out in real time. Um, Has all these like you know cameras that like like you see people through cameras or through mirrors and stuff. It's all just the craft is just insane. And I also think the story is is great. Um And I think that yeah, I I thought it was really funny, way funnier than I, I wasn't expecting to be it to be remotely funny. No, no, it's a bad thing. I just. You know, I just didn't think it was going to be a comedy film. And I I laughed a lot. And so did everyone else, you know, in the cinema. So I I was really surprised by how good, how much I enjoyed it.
6: It's um, very good in the way that it doesn't have to um, get, get rid of people's mobile phone history in order to, you know, make the mystery element work. It actually uses their mobile phone history in a way that I've never seen before brilliant yes um yeah, yeah i love yeah.
7: my phone stuff when he's like there's like a scene where he's like texting um the woman and he's like sending her like are you up and she he's like waiting for her to reply And he's just like st- stood by his car like waiting for his text and he gets to reply and he you know, looks at it it's just like so I, and it taking photos on his phone and stuff it just yeah really really as you said I, i've never seen anyone using my phone like that before
6: also i don't know if, uh, if it's just me but whenever i'm watching a film and i think Oh, this is a bit like Vertigo, isn't it? Um, it just gives me some sort of weird kind of cinephilia uh, <laughs> rush. Of, of oh, it's a bit like Vertigo, even though I know deep down what I really mean by that is it's a bit like Body Double, isn't it? But um...
7: <laughs> yeah, it's more like Body. I think I think it's probably actually more like Body Double, Vertigo, because it doesn't have like a sort of you know dual identity, but it is about that sort of you know the murders, like you know who's actually committed them, why have they been committed. I, I thought it was a really interesting story, actually.
0: Yeah, it's a lot of fun. So that's been our 10 to 6. As I say, you can hear the rest of this countdown on Directors Uncut. Uh, find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at TGS underscore The Geek Show for more on that. Uh, but until then, uh, from me, Cliff, Andrew and Oliver, that's been your lot from Pop Screen. We will be back with a more regular episode next week, about 9 to 5. We are finally tackling Dolly. It's been an oversight for a while. Uh, But as I say, you'll hear the rest of our countdown for the year on Directors Uncut.